The 1990s was a time of change. It's when VHS gave way to DVD, when cable gave way to the internet, and when we went from children to adulthood, sort of. Um, and that's the decade we're talking about tonight. It's Death by Video! There's a movie that you never seen. The map is a ninja's or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles, there'll be tears. You won't watch a movie for about 8 billion years. It's time for death by video. Time for death by video. And now the show will begin. Hello, I'm Phil. Hey, I'm Kit. And I'm Graham, saying welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem. I know I say this a lot on our episodes, especially considering the fact that none of them have been finished recently or uploaded, but uh, apologies for such a big gap between episodes. Hopefully now we've got the situation under control and can start uh, doing episodes again more frequently. We've all just been very busy. That is true, but uh, also I've been uh, not suffering from technical issues, but I think I've got those sorted. They don't need to know those. Sure they do. Um... And so we're actually going to be discussing our top 10 movies from the 1990s. Just be aware that these are not, uh, we don't think, it's not top 10 collectively between the three of us. We've put it to a vote or anything. This is our top 10 personal picks. Then they could change in a year or two or whenever. Uh, But to start us off, you know what? I'm going to start us off for a change. Normally I give uh, you guys leeway, but uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, And my first pick is a movie from 1990 directed by Steve Barron. And it is a film that uh, really kicked off my love of going to see movies in the theater. It was the second film I ever saw in theaters, the first being Babar the movie. Uh, It is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the live action movie from 1990, starring Judith Hogg as April O'Neil, Elias Coteus as Casey Jones, a whole bunch of guys as the Turtles, Josh Pies as Raphael, David Foreman as Leonardo, Brian Toshi as Leonardo, uh, and Leif Teldon as Donatello, Corey Feldman as the voice of Donatello, um, and uh, Michelin Sitsi as Michelangelo, uh, Robbie Fist as the voice of Michelangelo, Kevin Clash as Splinter, um, or the voice of the Splinter, James Saito as the Shredder, and uh, David McKeeran as the Shredder, Oracle Saki the voice of. There's a whole bunch of others, but uh, and of course Michael Turney as Danny Pennington. Thing. So this movie, live action, it was uh, Jim Henson's final production that he worked on physically. He said that the heads they made for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in this film were the finest work his uh, puppet shop had ever done. Uh, you can you can buy uh, those turtle costumes on like I remember seeing them for sale on some sort of bidding website, and they were going they're going pretty high, but they also uh, do not look good. No, no. I mean, latex doesn't last forever, as everyone who bought the Evil Dead Book of the Dead edition did in the early 2000s realizes now, like, my copy of that is falling apart. So these latex turtles, which were meant for flexibility, and, you know, eventually the latex dries out, it cracks and it flakes off, and now they kind of look like nightmare fuel. Phil, what were you going to say? Uh, yeah, Steve Barron, he uh, he came up, uh, He's he was the director of, like, all the big 80s MTV videos. Like, he did uh take on me billy jean money for nothing just like all the heavy hitter uh mtv videos yeah and um uh it was interesting because they hired golden harvest the uh the company that of course Mm. produced the great kung fu films of uh the early bruce lee films as well as 
uh, Enter the Dragon, and then later on the Jackie Chan films of the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, probably my favorite. Like a lot of people like favor Shaw, I favor Golden Harvest. I prefer their contemporary urban action to Shaw's um, classic period piece action movies. Uh, I like them both. I, I, I like both studios. But this is a good pick uh, from you, uh, Graham. Um, definitely uh, a movie that I saw in theaters. Of, of course, big fan of the cartoon. Um, it's hard to understate the, the allure of the Foot Clan, um, who have a, have a clubhouse, which is established right at the start of the movie, where you can uh, smoke, gamble, uh, drink, and uh, skateboard. Uh, they've got a little skate park in the clubhouse. That is, uh, man, if you were a wayward youth, how could you resist? And they also have arcade games. They do, yes. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and spray paint. Um, and yeah, they can just spray paint on random walls. So uh, early performance from Sam Rockwell. Yeah, he plays the uh, the member of the Foot Clan at the end that tells them like, "Hey, check out the uh, the uh, Eastman Warehouse over on Laird Street," which is an homage to the creators mm-hmm. of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Eastman and Laird. Um, we should also point out that this film at the time was the highest grossing independent film of all time because this was before New Line Cinema was acquired by by Warner Brothers. Uh, Steve Barron, his, um, how do I put it? Oh, Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, Skeet Ulrich's in it too. His, uh, his follow-up to, his follow-up work to Ninja Turtles, because he got kicked off of the sequel and I think there were a lot of, uh, he had a lot of clashes with production going over time and over budget. But he went on to direct Coneheads. He directed Electric Dreams. He directed The uh, Adventures of Pinocchio, the 1996 version starring uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Martin Lando as Geppetto. And he directed the TV movie Merlin starring Sam Neill. Um, Electric Dreams is a low-key gem. I watched that recently. Cool. I got to check it out. I've never it's seen it. It's on Tubi. It's on Criterion as part of the AI series. Oh, yes. It, it really leans into the uh, 80s MTV aesthetics, that movie. In the year 2000, he directed a 175-minute movie called Arabian Nights, uh, which was just an epic that uh, no one really saw, unfortunately. Wow. That, that might have been a TV movie, uh, depending on its length. Um, he, yeah, like you were saying, he directed uh, he directed, you know, the AHA video of Take On Me. Um, he also directed um, a bunch of videos for ZZ Top. I'm trying to remember which ones. Um, but yeah, and that's that's my first pick is the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Gritty, really gritty aesthetics. Even though it was not shot in New York City, it really felt it. It kind of solidifies what I think a lot of people, uh, especially boys from our generation, think New York City is like, where it's wet, damp, dark, and dangerous. Um, we can't also understate Elias Coteas's performance in the film as Casey Jones, even though he does not like look favorably back on it. I think we all thought he was like the most coolest, dangerous person on earth. Oh yeah, and he he really does um, he. I, I don't know if Casey Jones was a character in the cartoon before the movie or not, but uh, he definitely captured exactly what I mm-hmm. thought. Also, the great Elias Cotillas. It's probably my first uh, introduction to him. Great Canadian actor. Um, yeah, who's probably also best known for Tucker, Man in His Dream, Exotica. Um, more recently, Zodiac. He's done a lot of work with David Fincher. He was in Zodiac. He was in uh, The Curious Crash. Case and Benjamin Button. Crash, the good one, not the bad one. Uh, Thin Two Red Line as well. Thin Red Line, sorry. Two Lovers. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's a great uh, gem of Canadian cinema and international cinema. Um, yeah, Casey Jones was in the cartoon before this. He was also in the original Ninja Turtles comics, where he was incredibly violent. He like, I think he cut somebody's head off. It's just he's oh, wow. yeah. The original Ninja Turtles comics were super violent. Like in the end, the um, at the end of, uh, of the original, I think the first issue, they like just kill. They blow up the shredder with a grenade. Um, Super violent. And this film straddles the line between... And it's great that it was an independent film. It's great that it was done... The martial arts were done by Golden Harvest. Because if it was, like, traditional North American action, the, the martial arts would have sucked. And I don't think it would have been 
as fun or as loose or as uh, I don't want to say violent, but just as action heavy. Because uh, in the sequels, like they toned down the action quite a bit. Like Leonardo was not able to use his swords. Michelangelo, there was a lot of issues internationally with him using nunchucks. I know in England, the nunchuck is actually banned, and also any depiction of it is banned. So they had to like replace him like using sausages or other stuff. Um, and I think we can all collectively agree with the original live action uh, Ninja Turtles movies. It is the best. Um, so Phil, what is your first pick for your top ten of the 1990s? Well, I'm going to go in chronological order, so I'm going to go with the very uh, underrated, underseen, but a one that is um, getting a bit of resurgence in the uh, among the neo-noir diehards, After Dark, My Sweet, based on the Jim Thompson novel, directed by James Foley, and starring Jason Patrick, Bruce Dern, and Rachel Ward. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with this uh, this film. What's uh, what's the deal? It's a uh, kidnapping uh, gone wrong, and a uh, drifter protagonist, box slash former boxer who is not who he claims to be. Dun dun dun. Cool. I haven't seen this film at all. So is it kind of like it's a very sweaty? very sweaty so is it a neo-noir in like the vein of i guess one false move or the hot spot definitely in that mold yeah, yeah the 90s neo-noirs where they replaced black and white photography with just sweatiness yeah. kind of like what we're living in right now um so in the in the overall scope of the neo-noirs of the 1990s where do you think it fits i i'd put it at the top of the neo-noirs cool um so anything else to add uh, not really Okay, uh, so keep moving on. What's your first pick for your top 10 of the 1990s? All right, well, uh, yeah, as Graham mentioned, this isn't uh, necessarily the definitive top 10 or even my definitive top 10 of the 90s list. Uh, it's mainly films that are closer at hand in my memory. So if I haven't seen a film in like 10 years, even though it's very worthy to be on the list, um, it's just not going to be on here. So we'll go with a film that I just rewatched. Um, and I'm going to take this one off the board. Obviously, people are waiting to see uh, which of the three big Tarantino uh, crime dramas um, are on the list. I'm just going to go with Pulp Fiction, just taking it off the board right now. I guess you guys could pick it as well. But um, I think I feel like um, people have almost gotten too cool for Pulp Fiction. They're they're all like it's a, too obvious a choice. I'm just I, I'm even looking at uh, Letterbox and I see a lot of like three star reviews. Like people are like, oh, it's overrated, blah blah blah. I mean, come on, people. This is a um, a huge film in terms of influence. Uh, obviously, it uh, it uh, spurned a bunch of copycat films, uh, which were not as good. Some some of them were pretty good. Uh, those early Guy Ritchie films, etc. Well, uh, Siskel and Ebert did, even did a whole show called the Tarantino Gener or the Tarantino Effect of the Tarantino Generation in 1995 about just like how much of an impact it had on cinema because the Tarantino-esque knockoffs like Hitman, ironic pop music, and just like cool dialogue or whatever just like swept everything so fast in the 1990s. Yeah, dialogue that didn't have much to do with the plot, where it's just uh, dissecting some sort of um, pop culture thing like banter and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, specifically, pop culture banter. I mean, like Seinfeld had already um, uh, in the '90s had kind of done that dialogue about nothing, just guys hanging out and talking about whatever. Um, but uh, this one really uh, the, had the whole postmodern effect of getting into the the pop culture and he talking really about. Cemented it. that in the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs with the whole like Madonna conversation. Yeah, and he, he brings up uh, a Madonna here as well. Uh, uh, what's her? Uh, Fabian, uh, played by um, the great French actress. Um, 
Maria de Medeiros. Yes, exactly. Um, she she talks about uh, she wants a pot. She wants a pot belly. Um, not uh, sort of like uh, Madonna in the video for Lucky Star, she suggests. But I mean, this is such a good uh, good film, filled with uh, great actors, uh, both character actors and um, Phil Lamar from uh, wasn't he from Mad TV? Yes, Phil Lamar from Mad TV, and he also was the voice of um, Hermes on uh, Futurama. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, there was also like a bit part with uh, Julius Sweeney, so you have like both SNL and uh, Mad TV representation in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, she's the um, of uh, Big Al's uh, Big uh, Moe's Crush and Toe. I forget. <laughs> I just watched this last night. I can't remember the uh, specific details. Um, of course, we've got the great uh, Harvey Keitel almost cameo as the wolf. Um, which was actually him uh, kind of reprising his role from La Femme Nikita, where he played a similar role of the cleaner. Uh, of course, uh, introduced the world to Ving Rhames. And uh, of course, the trajectory of Ving Rhames' career, which is uh, being in one of the most iconic movies of all time and then just doing Mission Impossible movies. Sorry, I got that wrong. It wasn't La Femme Nikita. It was the American remake Point of No Return, where he played the cleaner, which was the role originated by Jean Reno in uh, La Femme Nikita. And he was the cleaner in The Professional. Ah, that's right. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, resurrected John Travolta's career for better or for worse. Um, I, I think Travolta had a few good movies after that, but n none of them. Uh, although he was nominated for Best Actor, and I know he lost out to uh, Tom Hanks, and people were like, oh, maybe. Uh, I just rewatched it last night. John Travolta's not that great of an actor. His range just isn't. <laughs> He's like, get the shot! Get the shot! Uh, it's it's all a bit too much. Man, Uma Thurman is um, uh, obviously as Mia Wallace is uh, uh, very attractive. Uh, <laughs> never more so than after she gets the adrenaline shot and she's all like kind of wasted in the car ride home. Uh, just a peacock as Uma Thurman to me. Uh, I don't know. It's just a good film. Um, I don't I don't think I have anything else to say about it. Do you guys uh, want to? No, it's, I mean, it, it definitely, like, it kind of revolved, revived the anthology film for a while. I mean, without it, we wouldn't get four rooms. Um, what else can I can be said about it? Like, it definitely, it influenced culture. Um, it brought kind of brought surf music back in a big way in the 1990s, which might have unfortunately led to the Swing Revival, although I think there was Swingers that sort of did that. But the Swing Revival was well under review with, uh, underway with uh, the band Crown Royal Review, who appeared in The Mask and who, who were also basically just a, uh, a swing cosplaying uh, youth brigade. Um, uh, sorry, what were you going to say, Kit? Oh, I was just going to add um, that that whole conversation between uh, John Travolta and uh, Samuel L. Jackson when they're in the car ride over to the hit, and he's just thought he could just got back from Amsterdam, and he's talking about how different it is, and oh man, you can you can uh, weed is legal, and blah blah blah, and uh, they put mayo on French fries, things like that, and you can drink beer at the movies. You can drink beer at the movies. All these are realities for me now. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm a, a cultured man. He also he, he his eyes pop out of his head when Mia Wallace orders a five dollar milkshake. I'm like, that's a cheap ass milkshake nowadays, man. Well, it's 1993. The U.S. dollar was strong. <laughs> Yeah. Inflation yeah, inflation in the nineteen nineties. Now the nineteen nineties was like one of the few eras where inflation kind of slowed down dramatically. So Yeah. So is that all you have to say about Pulp Fiction Kit? Yeah. Uh, again, I think that's the best of his uh I wanna say nineties crime trilogy. Of course you have Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown, which is very close to edging this one out because I do love Jackie Brown, but I haven't seen it recently enough, so it, the award goes to Pulp Fiction. 
Okay, so I'm going to continue kind of the Pulp Fiction crime movie trend with something that could have been accused of being a knockoff of Pulp Fiction, but was not. Uh, and that is 1997's Gross Point Blank, directed by George Armitage, starring John Cusack, Mimi Driver, uh, sorry, Mini Driver, Mini Driver? Yeah, Mini Driver, Mini Driver, Dan Aykroyd, Joan Cusack, Alan Arkin, Hank Azaria, Jeremy Piven in one of his non-douchebag roles, um, and of course... <laughs> Very rare vintage. Yeah. Um, and of the course, whole Cusack family and Cusack. Yeah, and Cusack was in it. Jenna Elfman was in it. She's in it. Yeah, she Bre- is. Oh, she has the neck brace. Right. Um, and um, uh, one of my favorite cult action uh, film, uh, sorry, martial arts movie actors who also faced off against Jackie Chan many a time, Benny the Jet or Kidas um, as Felix La Poubelle, the ultimate. Um, uh, uh, hitman. It basically is uh, John Cusack stars a hitman going to his 10-year high school uh, anniversary. So the soundtrack is actually full of a lot of 1980s music because it was kind of playing off of John Cusack's icon, like iconography or iconic performances in 1980s teen com movies like Say Anything uh, and uh, what's that other one? Better Off Dead. Yeah, like in Say Anything, he's wearing a Clash shirt for half that movie. Yeah, and um, and uh, it's it's just great. I mean, it's. Super fun. It's almost like an I say I almost say it's like an anti-Tarantino yeah. film. Um, George Armitage, he directed Miami Blues. Yeah, which is another great one. He also directed uh, the on the 2004 remake of The Big Bounce. Um, oh God, I remember that with uh, Owen Wilson and Morgan Freeman. Yeah, he directed the 1972 movie Hitman. He directed uh, Vigilante Force in 1976, which I actually have here on DVD. He was a Corman guy. Yeah, it was an early Corman guy. Uh, and then he didn't after Gross Point Blank I mean, after the big bounce that kind of was it for him I I think he went into TV I'm not really sure um, but yeah I love this movie great soundtrack the soundtrack was executive produced by or produced by Joe Strummer so there's a couple Clash songs on there it's what brought Blister in the Sun back into pop culture awareness because they shot a new video where it's a guy trying to assassinate Socks the cat the um, the Clinton's cat uh, that they had in the in the White House in the 1990s. Of which one of the needle drops in Pulp Fiction? It's Lorca's Novena by the Pogues, which was on the the Pogues album that Joe Strummer produced. Ah, connections all over the place. Yeah. Um, so, Kit, you have not seen Gross Point Blank. Oddly enough, no. I remember it was being the debut of Mini Driver, basically, and not quite. No, it was well, her- sort of like a mainstream debut, almost yeah, American, I guess, because yeah. she did like Circle of Friends with Chris O'Donnell, and that was kind of like when she. Got she got known, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, it's got a, a good uh, supporting turn from Dan Aykroyd, which I mean, this is the kind of film that I should watch. But I think even at the time, as a young movie nerd, I was like, oh, another Tarantino copycat. Well, it's also funny because Gross Point Blank came out at the same time as Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. I think those were both like Disney productions. Wow. Um, Mini Driver also appeared in uh, the James Bond film Goldeneye in 1995. She was the Russian country music singer, saying who sang. Stand by your man. I don't remember that. I've never seen Big Night, but she was in that. Crazy. Oh, yeah. She was in a lot of stuff. I mean, this was also the year that... Uh, 1997 was also the year she was in right, Good Will Hunting. Oh, she was in Sleepers. Oh. <laughs> we're sorry. We're looking at uh, the letterboxed uh, mini driver um, filmography together. She was also in South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut as a voice. So was George Clooney. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in Owning Mahoney. Oh, she was in the uh, Gerard Butler Phantom of the Opera. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. She, she's, she's been in a lot. Um, I wanted to say she's in Miss Congeniality, but that was Sandra Bullock. Um, and then her most recent movie is Uproar from this year, uh, directed by Paul Middleditch and Hamish Bennett. Um, so, yeah, so 
super fun movie. It kind of like puts the 90s into a blender and like allows us to reflect on the 90s while the 90s are happening because it's seen through the like seen through a lot of the lens of the because the the overall uh, narrative of the 1990s, which people don't remember now, is that oh the 80s just sucked. The music just sucked. The sound the it's all like fake MTV bands and uh, this fashion sucked. And then this movie said like no, it's good. It's just like you have to look back on it in a certain way where you're not just rejecting like it, it wasn't about it wasn't all about poison. I mean, I think the specials are also on the soundtrack for that. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Top to bottom, great. Um, 90s specials, but still. Yeah, still good. All right, so Phil, what's your next pick? Uh, My Own Private Idaho from 1991. Mm-hmm. Woo! Directed by the great Gus Van Sant, featuring the great Keanu Reeves, the great River Phoenix. The great Udo Kier. Yeah, and the great Udo Kier, of course. I always and love it. the great Grace Zabriskie. Yeah, so this film also uh, on video stores was kind of a Trojan horse for a lot of people because the cover is like two guys on a motorcycle looking cool. And then a lot of people would rent it and uh, it's like, oh, they're two gay guys on a motorcycle looking well, cool. Well, this movie was, you know, like both Keanu and River had enough clout that this movie was showing in multiplexes in the States even though it was put out by like Fine Line, which was the uh, art house offshoot of New Line, but... Yeah, that was uh, Bob Shea's um, way to stick it to Bob and Harvey Weinstein because they started Dimension as their version of New Line Cinema for for Miramax. So he started Fine Line as like, this is our art house brand, so screw you, Weinsteins. And who's laughing now? But, but, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that it made it to the multiplexes, so there were a lot of very confused uh, teenagers. They got tricked into watching an art house movie, no less. Oh, it's Ted from Bill and Ted. Also, uh, also features William Richard uh, as Bob Pigeon, basically the the Falstaff analog. Um, but William Richard was a director who uh, who directed uh, Winter Kills, among other things. Uh, the late seventies, John Huston, Jeff Bridges, uh, paranoia comedy. Tishiro is- Mifune learned his lines phonetically. Yes, Tishiro Mifune is randomly in that. Mm-hmm. So is Elizabeth Taylor. It's it's quite Everybody a film. Everybody is in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> It's quite we're, a movie. We're gonna spend like hours going through that cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. My my own private Idaho. I've always been a fan of it. Uh, there's a very good Criterion Collection version of it out there that uh, is great. And um, uh, I have that DVD still. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a good and one. It has an essay by uh, J.T. Leroy, aka Laura Albert. Mm-hmm. Was that before the jig was, was up? Way before, yeah. Yeah. This before. was like the hey, this is like the golden age of JT Leroy. Oh, when like the hardest deceitful above all things turned into that movie directed by Aja Argento. Yeah, and you know, like uh Shirley Manson was like best friends with uh JT Leroy. The fictional JT Leroy who yeah. I, I it's it's funny. There was a movie about JT Leroy that came out um a while ago at and it played at Tiff and I saw it at Tiff and I don't know if it's gotten a release since. But it talked about it was is from the the woman who portrayed JT Leroy and like they missed an opportunity because it could have been a wacky comedy because Laura Albert was having like phone conversations with like Aja Argento at night. Of course, it wasn't actually Aja Argento in the movie. It was a uh, a female. It was a stand-in French actress played by Diane Kruger, and uh, so like J- like uh, Laura Albert would talk to uh, Aja Argento at night and have a conversation, and then the next day, uh, the the woman portraying JT Laura would have to meet up with Aja Argento and try and. Re- and just try and play along because she didn't actually hear the conversation or know what they talked about. So she there'd be like conflicting information. Um, uh, but yeah, anything else to add about my own private Idaho? Um, I, I just love that uh, River Phoenix is a male prostitute who gets paid to receive head, 
which is <laughs> which is quite something. Um, also, I, I saw an interview with um, like an early interview with uh, a joint interview with uh, River Phoenix and um, Keanu Reeves. And uh, the interviews, uh, do you get like a lot of flack because you're you're playing a gay guy in this movie? And he's like, uh, he uses expletives, which I won't hear, so Graham doesn't have to bleep them out. But he's like, uh, oh, that, that doesn't doesn't effing matter. And he's like, so you don't receive? And he's like, yeah, I do. They do give me a hard time, but who gives a crap? You know, doesn't matter. Yeah. Get a clue. Also, uh, I can't recall. Does my own private Idaho by the B fifty two show up in the movie? No, it doesn't. It was just named after Private Idaho by the B-52s. It's a great song. It is. Yeah. Cool. So moving on, Kit, what's your next pick for your Happy top? belated birthday, Keanu Reeves. Oh, yes. Canadian icon Keanu Reeves. Alas, I think Dracula has eluded us yet again. <laughs> uh, so, Kit, what's your next pick? Uh, while, while you guys go through all the art house fair and uh, make yourselves seem smart, I'm going to go with some more obvious picks. Um, but these are really good films, and I watched this one uh, again recently, and uh, it's Fargo. Folks, it's Fargo. The uh, Possibly the best Coen Brothers film, although I don't know, there's some debate. But uh, probably their best film of the 90s, you could definitely argue. Um, I know we've also got... I, I would argue that Fargo is also the best Coen Brothers movie, personally. Yeah. Oh, favorite. wow, really? I, uh, I gotta go with... It um... grew on me over time. Yeah, I, I like it quite a bit, but I got to go with No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men or A Serious Man. They really did uh, knock it out of the park in the uh, late aughts. Also, Burn After Reading is an underrated film. Um, but what else did they put out in the night? The Miller's Crossing, uh, Barton Fink, and uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Big Lebowski, of course. Oh, Big Lebowski. That was near nearing on my list. Uh, I was going to pick that, but uh, I got to say Fargo is a bit better. It's just got, um, I don't know, man, that, that, that Carter Burwell score, too. And um, I know uh, we're doing this top 10 uh, films of the 90s, uh, sort of somewhat based on uh, Ebert and Scorsese's uh, top 10 films of the 90s show that they did. And uh, Scorsese does mention, he's like, uh, whenever this film comes on, I have, I'm just compelled to watch it. You just sucked right in. And a lot of that is that uh, Carter Burwell score, which uh, kind of sparks everything off. But man, what a great performance from Steve Buscemi and William H. Macy and Francis McDormand, obviously. Um, and um, I don't know, it's just, it's such a almost perfect film. It, I know there's the show Fargo, um, which I kind of enjoyed the first season. I never, I never kept up with it because it... Um, second season is very good. So I hear. I, I hear the second season's the best. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's what I hear, and maybe I should check it out. But the, the first season really bothered me in a number of ways because it, it sets up as, a, oh, this is Fargo. Look, they're doing the accents. It's a, the same kind of um, uh, really tragic, comic uh crime drama type type deal but they rely so much on on like magic realism and things like that like uh billy bob thornton is found by uh by um what's his name that little colin hanks because a wolf comes out into the road and he has to stop his mail truck and that's where billy bob thornton lives and it's like oh well, that's magical whereas in the movie it's all like almost hyper realism like the whole reason that uh, Francis McDormand solves the crime is that kind of that um, that one bit with the with the Japanese uh, classmate to uh, he he's really in love with her, um, and he tells her all these things. Oh, I got married to this girl, blah blah blah. And she finds out that he was lying, and that triggers her to go re-interview William H Macy because it's like maybe he's lying as well. But also her whole tip of finding where Peter Stormare is is based on a random tip that some guy gives to a random police officer earlier on in the film. 
about how uh, although that skinny guy he was talking about oh you need some action up at the uh up at the cabin or up up at the lake i ain't got no action i'm going insane and he, it's all like just police work it's all very almost hyper realistic it's fantastic i mean it's not a realistic movie per se but i mean it it doesn't just jump to conclusions and use magic to to get the plot done as the show does which really annoyed me about the show I'll get over it but i would like to say <laughs> what are you talking about it's not real it's based on a true story the names have been changed to protect the innocents like uh, fa- famously they um that was uh there was an old movie called macon county line or just Macon County, perhaps. Um, that, um, I think it was Macon County Line. It's Macon County Line. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And that, um, they tested it for audiences and it didn't test well. So they inserted a title card saying, this is based on a true story, names have been changed to respect the dead. And all of a sudden, the audiences loved it. So this, uh, the, uh, the Coens were just doing sort of an homage to that, but then that took on a life of its own. And then there's a fake documentary about a woman who went to go find the money, which is also fake. That's not even real as well. But there was a, a fake documentary about how she died trying to find the hidden money in the snow. Um, it's a cultural phenomenon, Fargo is, and it's a great movie. It wasn't a fake documentary. It was actually a narrative. But the, the interesting oh, thing okay. that the Coens said is that, like, if you say something is a true story, you can get away with anything happening in the movie. Because if you say it's a true story, people will buy it. But if it's just a movie, sometimes they'll question the, the verisim- verisimilitude similitude sure yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever that word is of the actual events so anything else to say about Fargo uh, no it's a it's a great film uh, did it win best picture that year I don't think it did it was nominated that was the English patient year right uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Elaine Bennis another <laughs> <laughs> uh, thing I like about Fargo is just like a lot of the quirky humor just these like little details like they eat like night crawlers with like chopsticks and Oh yeah, it's just a, a wacky movie. And of course, the uh, the great um, uh, what's his name? Steve Buscemi. No, uh, John Carroll Lynch as uh, as uh, as Norm Gunderson, oh. son of a Gunderson. This is Zodiac Killer himself. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was Fargo. Kids pick. So my next pick, uh, I'm going to go 1997's another 1997 movie. Fargo uh, was 96. No, I was talking about my oh, yeah. my last pick. of gross point blank. Right. It is David Lynch's Lost Highway. Um, so this is kind of the movie that solidified him for 1990s audiences, because I think Blue Velvet, it, as Blue Velvet was for his 1980s output, Lost Highway was for his 1990s output, because in the 1990s he released Wild at Heart, uh, Fire Walk With Me, Lost Highway, and The Straight Story, and I think this is the movie that solidified him for millennials and, yeah, for millennials primarily. Um, I mean, this film is stacked. It stars Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, Robert Blake. Balthazar, but okay. Balthazar. <laughs> Richard Blake, unfortunately. Richard Pryor. Nobody's scarier than Robert Blake, obviously. Yeah. Though he really does kill that. No pun intended. He's, he's a bad person. Uh, Jack Nance, Henry Rollins, Giovanni Ribisi, Gary Busey, Robert Loggia. Um, stacked with problematic Mink people. Stoll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he, but for some reason, uh, the Lynch makes it all work, um, and a bunch of other people as well. Natasha Gregson, <laughs> Marilyn Manson, don't forget. Oh yeah, and Twiggy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in that in that one scene, um, and it introduced Rammstein to uh, to a lot of North American audiences, um, as well as that fantastic. It also made uh, "Song to the Siren" by This Mortal Coil a huge goth 90s hit um and it uh it also gave us the fantastic lou reed cover of this magic moment Mm -hmm. Uh, but the visuals in this movie the fact and and like people have been debating about the meaning of it from what i understand from the stuff i've read and the people i've talked to the overall narrative thrust is that 
Bill Pullman kills his wife and then goes to the electric chair. And in the electric chair is when he has this fantasy of himself as a young person who just gets laid all the time because in the movie he's kind of impotent and can't quote-unquote get it up for his hot wife, Patricia Arquette. And as a young, very old man, he like winds up sleeping with like a ton of people, does a lot of cool stuff, and then he reemerges at the end, and as he's driving away and burning up and smoking, that's him dying in the electric chair. But there's a lot of weird stuff in this movie. Is it, is it Lawrence Tierney that's in that as well, or am I thinking of no. somebody else? No, who am I thinking of? Uh, Robert, Robert Loggio. Robert Loggio, okay, sorry. Who, by the way, has like the, the most positive, pers- like, version of road rage in this film like i'm all for right? his yeah because he's just like some guy's tailgating him and then he stops pulls out a gun and says like do you understand how many traffic accidents are caused by tailgating every year I'm... it's the most dangerous thing to do when you're driving i was gonna say it's a very effective uh tailgating psa uh right in the middle of the movie it's fantastic there's also that line like it's really funny but it's really sinister at the same time where he like pulls like the videotape out and he says like you like pornos <laughs> yeah yeah i mean richard Pryor has that small role in it but oh god yeah i forgot but uh, apparently he was okay to work with like because there was a lot of talk like is this exploitative like richard Pryor was not in good health at the time but uh, apparently richard Pryor just really wanted to be in a david lynch film um i mean it's just even gary Busey comes across kind of all right in this movie as, as the dad the the leather yeah. jacket wearing dad the cool dad like you figure they almost could have been a part of twin peaks like with um with uh, James Hurley and, and the and the lot. Yeah, so it was Richard Pryor's last role. It was uh, Robert Blake's last role, of course, and it was also Jack, Jack Nance's, Nance's yeah. last role. Oh yeah, yeah. Two, Nance, two like, of them died. Yeah. One of them did not. No. Yeah. Well, they're all dead now. Yeah. <laughs> but like, um, one's in hell. Yes. But just uh, Jack Nance like complaining about uh, Balthazar getting turning off the free jazz. He's like, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was nice. I like that. I know for being such a dark, weird, twisted, scary movie, it's also very light and funny. That's uh, like every yeah. movie, though. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people did say that he just ripped this movie off when he did Mulholland Drive, but I feel that Mulholland Drive has a total different uh, thrust and meaning behind it. It's also got Jake Busey instead of Gary Busey in Mulholland Drive, so very different. Oh, yeah. Working his way through the whole Busey family. But, um, yeah, I remember the first time I watched this film was actually, like, my dad was a Lynch fan. I had not been introduced to Lynch. Um, and so my dad was like, oh, I'm going to rent this uh, Lost Highway. And uh, I oh, was... Were you, like, 13 at the time? Yeah, it was a very awkward watch with my dad, especially with the forced stripping of uh, uh, Patricia Arquette. Um, but, uh, man, what a good movie. I, I recently rewatched it um, with some first-timers who hadn't seen it at the start of the pandemic. We did uh, one of those online watch parties and just the quality of the the start of the film feels so much like a weird student film. Like it has this weird kind of quality, like where the shots don't quite work. It looks, it feels like a set. And of course, you've got Bill Pullman doing his very sweaty, passionate saxophone playing. Just, uh, um, uh, it's fantastic. It all works somehow, and it doesn't even seem like it should, but it does. I think we also need to talk about the marketing behind Lost Highway when it first came mm. out. So the movie was not well received. It was Witch's comeback, but it was not well received. And Cisco and Ebert infamously gave it two thumbs down, and they used that for the marketing. So the big header, two thumbs down, according to Cisco and Ebert, two more great reasons to see Lost Highway. <laughs> yeah, I mean by this Fantastic. point, this point, like Cisco and Ebert were kind of like running out of steam. I mean, I think I don't think I think Gene Siskel died this year. Uh, he died a couple years after. Yeah, he was he was away from the show for a bit to deal with uh, brain cancer, which right. he then fought 
and came back and he was like, all right, uh, studios, you're not allowed to make bad films anymore. And then I guess it, when it came back and he, he passed. It's also worth noting that Ebert was very anti-David Lynch until the straight story. Like practically every David Lynch movie he did before then, like Ebert just... Blue Velvet even? Yeah. Oh yeah, Especially he infamously Blue. gave it one star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He... It's probably one of Ebert's most infamous reviews. Yeah, he didn't like the treatment of uh, Isabella Rossellini. So he, would, he would also not have liked the treatment of Patricia Arquette then. But he actually did write that in his review yeah. last Highways. Uh, my here's my thing about slight sidebar about Roger Ebert because I rewatched their like anti horror movie episode from 1981, I think, and um, and like Ebert's the biggest hypocrite because he wrote. Beneath the Valley of the Ultravictions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, uh, yeah, I was talking, I'm not talking about Beyond the Valley of the Elves, I'm talking about Beneath the Valley of the Ultravictions, which came out in like 79 and is horrendously misogynistic, horrendously like f- sexist and fascist and bad, and just like a lot of bad things. And he's out there like wagging his finger at like David Lynch and stuff. And I'm like, David Lynch has meaning and purpose behind it. Like the, the treatment of Elisabella Rossellini was inspired by the, um, the napalm bombing of Vietnam. And uh, and like in this film, it was definitely like he was reflecting on the the, the I guess the culture of the time to for lack of a better term the bimboification of uh, of sex symbols because it was like you had you know Pamela Anderson and Nicole Smith um, you know breast augmentation got huge and in a way just like the 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 mistreatment and debasement of Patricia Arquette's both characters in the film were definitely a reflection of the the anti feminism going on at the time. Also, um, and I, I think we all like Roger Ebert ultimately, like we all love him still, but I mean, he, he did have some missteps, but wasn't his like review of uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High that the sex scenes with Jennifer Jason Lee weren't hot enough? Yes. He, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was a pervy weirdo. Like yeah, he, he said the movie was misogynistic, but at the same time also like criticizing the, the treatment of sex is like disgusting. Because... High school sex is not disgusting. <laughs> it's supposed to be hot, man. Um, also, like going back to the the review of Blue Velvet, you, I think Isabella Rossellini's response was like she felt like she was doing something wrong with oh. her performance. Like she she took that review personally, and that's that's the problem. I mean, like, like she felt like she was like her performance was misunderstood and like she wasn't conveying what. Uh, but she, but I mean, history has bore out that she yes. did do the her uh, performance yeah. fantastically. Also, uh, just a side note on Isabella Rossellini. I remember recently seeing um, two birthday posts from her. One for Martin Scorsese, who she'd been linked up with, and it was like, yeah. Martin, here's the two of us. Happy birthday. And then the one for David Lynch was like, David, <laughs> remember this time? We were so in love then. Just, just going on and on about uh, how much she loves David Lynch. So you can tell. Uh, which director she considers better, I guess. Oh, yeah. All right, so uh, let's pick up the pace. Phil, what's your... was flying in the, during those years on yeah. so, the white stuff. <laughs> Phil, what's your next pick? All right, good question. Da, da, da. We're only at number four. Oh, my God. Da, da. This is going to be an uh, epic banter pod. Shortcuts, Robert Altman's 1993 film Shortcuts. Remember, I'm going in chronological order of re-release. Nice. I first saw this film in uh, my post-war cinema class in university. Uh, it's kind of a, it's it's sort of an anthology, but not really. It's it's a bunch of different stories uh, from covering Los Angeles. Short stories that Altman 
adapted to be this sort of uh, interconnected uh, big tapestry of characters who overlap in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of like, I mean, I think this is the first earliest Julianne Moore performance that really got noticed. Yeah, like she was in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle before then, and she had like a bit part in The Fugitive, but uh, this was like her most prominent role. And uh, there's an infamous scene. Uh, the hot tub scene where they're wearing clown makeup? No, in Shortcuts, uh, where Julianne Moore, there's a scene where she's required to not wear any underwear, and uh, she did say to Altman, it's like, yes, uh, the... <laughs> The carpet matches the drapes. <laughs> yep. Uh, nothing. Nothing to add there. I haven't seen shortcuts actually. I, I should check it out. In the actor's studio, where she shared that anecdote. Probably. Uh, yeah. I mean, shortcuts. I haven't seen it since. <laughs> I have not seen it since that uh, post-war cinema class, all the way back in the year two thousand and three. Um, so yeah, twenty years. So it's due for a rewatch for me. But yeah, good pick. Anything else to add about shortcuts? It's fantastic. Great Alex Trebek cameo. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's in the opening credits. All right, so that was Shortcuts. So, Kit, what's your next pick? <laughs> Graham is speeding things up. <laughs> um, let's go. Uh, there's, another, there's another director where you could pick a few films from his, but I will go with one that I first saw recently. Uh, I hadn't actually seen it, uh, and it's uh, Before Sunrise. That's the Richard Linkletter film. Great, great movie. Very good, yes. Starring uh, Julie Delpy and um, Ethan Hawke, of course, and then a bunch of randos. <laughs> they, they don't matter. Uh, it's a, it focuses on the, uh, the two of them uh, spending a uh, night in Vienna together. Uh, kind of a, what do you want to call it? Um, they just meet each other on the train, and then they're, they're spending a, a night just talking and walking in Vienna together. Vienna being apparently the most um, date-friendly city in all of Europe. I mean, if you... A funny detail of Before Sunrise, which is because this movie is like a, sta- a screenshot staple of a lot of accounts I follow online. Uh, Ethan Hawke is reading Klaus Kinski's memoir and uh, Julie Delpy's reading uh, The Erotica of Georges Bataille. I did not notice that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the film that... I don't want to say it was Richard Linklater's comeback, but it was the... Because Dazed and Confused kind of flopped. Um, I mean, it did flop. And then when was the Newton Boys? Was it before or after this? This was a few years after. So this was a few years after his, his big flop of the New- Newton Boys. When, when did Slackers come out? Was that uh, late Slacker 80s or? It was 1991. Okay. I've never actually seen Slacker. Slackers? Yeah, really... Slacker's good. Yeah, I really like Slacker. But I mean, this was kind of his like move into like more... I mean, people saw him as being an American filmmaker, but they didn't really pick up on his European influences until this film, where it's like, we're just going to follow these characters as they have one night together and then depart in the morning. Again, in the most romantic city in the world. I mean, um, if uh, if you want a bottle of wine at three in the morning, you just have to tell the bartender that you're in love and you're having a great date. And he's like, here's a bottle of red wine. Don't worry about it. If he senses love in the air, he'll just give you that bottle of wine. Also, there's like, a, they come across a beggar. And uh, we've all come across beggars begging for coins, but never like this, where it's just like, I'll write you a few lines of, uh, lines of verse for a, for a handful of coin. And, and he does. And, uh, you know, the, even the dialogue of the movie is like, he probably has those verses already written and he's just putting our names in or whatever. But that, man, imagine being on a date and some beggar writes you a poem and he reads it to you and like, what a date booster. That's fantastic. There's also like, um, they're, they're sitting down for a second and there's like a wandering palm reader. 
that just comes over like these are all fantastic first date options and they have the best first date also the uh, the great scene when they go to the record shop and uh what are they listening to again they're listening to kath bloom so like kath bloom was pretty obscure at the time but uh they, that this movie helped put uh establish the cult status of kath bloom she was i think she was from vermont or somewhere in like somewhere in new england or somewhere in the pacific uh, northeast Anyway, it's a, it's a great film, and if you've ever, like, um, I don't know, chance to meet a uh, Julie Delpy or an Elf Ethan Hawke and had that kind of experience, which I sort of have, never obviously that romantic and uh, that perfect, but um, it's it's a really great film. Oh, the Jets are back. Yeah, Toronto's under attack right now by the <laughs> International Air Show, which just keeps bombing our city. Yeah, we, Cancel the air show now! No, but we do wish we had a date, a first date like Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. And, uh, but do we, though? Because it doesn't really... I mean, it leads to marriage like 20 years later. Oh, spoiler. They, they, I haven't they, seen the uh, rest of the, the rest of the... Actually, they don't get married. They... In, not in the third one? No, they have kids, but they do not... No, not I've, 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 I've only seen two of the uh, Before trilogy. Of course, we've got Before Sunrise, we've got Before Sunset, oh, yes. and then b Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is a real... <laughs> A real left turn for the series, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what they were thinking about that one. That well, that's that showed Ethan Hawke's life back in the states. <laughs> no, obviously, uh, what's it? Um, before, what's the third one called again? Midnight. Before midnight. Yeah. yeah. Good, good films. All Anyways, films that came out nine years apart from each other and depicting real time. Do we? Do we know? Because I know Richard Linkletter likes to do that, obviously, yeah. famously with Boyhood. But did he plan that from the get-go with the the Before I'm series? I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the making process was, but Before Sunset came out nine years after, came out in 2004, nine years after Before Sunrise, and then they he they all continued that with Before Midnight, nine, no, 2013, nine years after. A funny, uh, a funny little tidbit is uh, apparently Ethan Hawke revealed in a, a relatively recent interview that he's never had his teeth fixed, although I guess he could because he's a famous actor. But he's never had his teeth fixed because, just in case they do another movie, he doesn't think Jesse would get his teeth fixed, mm. so he's kept them as is. Huh. Interesting. Okay, moving on to my next pick. Um, I'm going to go with my Normcore choice here. It's 1995's Apollo 13, directed by Ron Howard. Dang. Saw, I saw that in one, one in theaters. So did, so I. did I. Yeah, it uh, stars Tom Hanks, Bill Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris, Kathleen Quinlan, David Andrews, Xander Berkeley, Christian Clemenson, Brett Cullen, Lauren Dean, Clint Howard, Ben Marley, Mark McClure, Tracy Reiner, Joe Spano, Mary-Kate Schulhart, Emily Ann Lord, Miko Hughes, Max Elliott Slade, a whole bunch of people. Um, but people we've never heard. <laughs> but uh, cinematography by Dean Cundey. Oh wow! The, he was nominated for an Oscar for this film. Uh, Dean Cundey, of course, the cinematographer of many collaborations with John Carpenter and Robert Zemeckis, and Steven Spielberg. He did Jurassic Park. He did Hook. He did the Back to the Future trilogy. He did uh, Halloween, Escape from New York, The Fog, The Thing. Um, uh, Satan's Cheerleaders, The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Um, and uh, I got to work with him, I think I've told this story before in the podcast, well over a decade ago now, super nice guy. Uh, he told me the great story about how they were able to shoot uh, at NASA on real rockets. And because uh, Ron Howard, like they asked, you know, the studio and the studio said no. Um, and so Ron Howard and Dean Cundey and Steven Spielberg were all having like lunch or something and they kind of mentioned like, ah, shit, like NASA's not going to let us film on it. And Steven Spielberg's like, oh, they're not, huh? Okay, let me make a call. So, Steven Spielberg called Bill Clinton, and then all of a sudden they were able to shoot at NASA. So, I mean, this was just the pull of Steven Spielberg at the time. 
Um, this kind of feels like the greatest Spielberg film that Spielberg never shot. I mean, it's got a the ca- like I just love the core cast of Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, and Tom Hanks. I think this is Gary Sinise and Gary Sinise, but, but like the three guys in the shuttle. And I I like space stuff. I love stuff about people figuring out problems. And uh, and this film is just that. It's like how do you solve the unsolvable thing? You have a problem when you're not even on the planet. How do you get those people back home safely? Like you can't launch a rescue attempt. There's no second crew to go up and bring them back like you just have to figure it out and they did in reality and they did in this film and this film made it very uh made it very watchable and very enjoyable this was right after uh tom hanks's big back-to-back oscar wins for uh, philadelphia and forrest gump and am i mistaken was he one of the few actors uh, along with jim carrey commanding a 20 million dollar salary at the time or maybe after this i think maybe this might have been his first if this was, if he was committing a twenty million dollar salary, this was his only film where he got it for. I think. Oh, okay, okay. I think um, Jim Carrey didn't get twenty million. I told the Cable Guy. Oh. No, no, Batman Forever was his, his first twenty million. I thought I could have sworn it was the Cable Guy because Batman Forever was so huge, and then when Cable Guy flopped, it's like, is Jim Carrey worth it? <laughs> well, then he had Liar Liar, which was a big hit. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like it, uh, but like this is just peak. It's also like you can't undersell how much late 1960s early 1970s content was being or i hate that word content but like films tv shows were being pumped out in the 90s yeah we had some like obviously the mission impossible remake but there were so many uh other ones the wonder years uh and i mean uh, coming up the very next year that thing you do the tom hanks directed film forrest gump of course exactly this was which would like the equivalent would be um, nostalgia for the aughts nowadays, which is frightening to think about. Yeah. Well, it'd be nostalgia for 30, 25 to 30 years prior, which is like the, the late 90s, early 2000s, which I, I, we haven't had our 1990s nostalgia wave. I mean, it's kind of in there, but we don't have that wave of movies set in the 1990s. Well, we do have uh, all the kids wearing Nirvana t-shirts nowadays. You do Name three Nirvana th- songs, kids. <laughs> you do get the odd period movie set in the early 2000s, though. Like, I Like Movies is probably the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, there's Lady Bird. Yeah. I mean, the most recent film, Bottoms, you could argue exactly. might be set in the early 2000s. It because It feels like it's a movie from the early 2000s. It's very much that vibe. Because they have, like, Razor flip phones and, and portable CD players. Yeah, a lot of that is for writers to get away from the um, troublesome aspect of cell phones and having that and having to craft a story around cell phones and... Well, there were cell phones and bottoms. Okay. Well, I haven't seen bottoms. But, but there was just no social media or anything, which kind of made it better. Um, but yeah, I, like this movie is like clockwork. It's a banger. Uh, I, it's a movie that you can, like anytime it's on, you can just jump in and watch it. Um, and yeah, that was Apollo 13. Phil, what is your next pick? I'm going to go with the 1995 Claude Chabrol film, La Ceremonie, which is French for the ceremony. <laughs> with... Uh, <laughs> Isabel Uber. It's like Le Car is French for the car. <laughs> Phil is wearing a beret at the moment, by the way. Eating a baguette with a cigarette <laughs> hanging out of my mouth. Um, with Isabel Huppert and Sandrine Bonner, uh, two of the greatest French actresses of our time. I can't add anything because I haven't seen this movie. It is on the Criterion channel, FYI. Cool. I, I do love Isabel Huppert. What's, what's the film about? It's uh, about uh, Sandrine Bonner. She's a uh, she gets hired as a housekeeper for um, a wealthy French family, and she befriends uh, town outcast Isabelle Huppert, and uh, Isabelle Huppert becomes a uh, quote unquote bad influence on uh, Sandrine Bonner, and tensions mount. 
I'm, I'm, it deals with class disparity. It's a psychological thriller, like a real great slow burn, set in uh, small town France. I'm I'm intrigued. I may watch this film uh, soon. Cool. I cannot recommend it highly enough. When when's the first time you saw it? When? Uh, uh probably late two thousands. It was like a Queen video rental. I was going through the Claude Chabrol oeuvre. Which Queen video was it? Queen on Queen, Queen on College, or Queen on Bloor? Queen on Bloor. That was my go-to. Because yeah. I alternated between that and the uh, Suspect at Honest Ed's. R.I.P. both Suspect and Queen video. I believe Queen on Bloor is still vacant, and you might still be able to see the ghost sign. There it's been definitely in, the ghost sign. It's been inhabited, and they've actually they've actually gotten rid of the ghost sign. Ah. I know. They they finally like did, got rid of the actual thing that the, the lettering had essentially just burned itself because into. when the weed shop closed the ghost sign was there again it reappeared yeah. oh yeah i know i took many a photo of it on both film digital and black and white film so kit what is your next pick for your top 10 of the 1990s all right we're going with more auteur cinema here and i think this is uh this director's best film overall although there there's probably a lot of dispute about that uh but i'm going with just getting the year here 1998's rushmore Starring Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, obviously the great Olivia Williams. You've got Seymour Cassell in there. Uh, Brian Cox, uh, not the scientist, the actor. Uh, Luke Wilson shows up. Uh, that's, uh, that... oh, Dennis the Menace is in it? Dennis the Menace? Yeah, whatever his name is. The, the dude who played Dennis the Menace. I never saw the Dennis the Menace movie. The one with Walter Matthau, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, the kid, right. Yeah. He plays. He plays like a... Uh, he plays uh, Schwartzman's like protege. In the yeah, film. is his yeah. second in command, the one who uh, yeah. eventually betrays him because he he tells him that his uh, he he got a hand job from his his mom. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the bully told him, and then he betrays him. Uh, a very uh, a rare appearance from the third Wilson brother, Andrew Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, is in this. Um, I do love the scene where um, Luke Wilson shows up in his uh, in his, scrubs. His, his scrubs, and he's like, uh, "Oh, what are you wearing there? I like your uh, your nurse's outfit." And he's like, "Oh, these are OR scrubs. Oh, are they?" Still, still hits. <laughs> yeah, this is this is probably like the last Wes Anderson film that was kind of set in the real world. I mean, Tenenbaums, to a small extent, you could argue was set in the real world. In a sense, I mean, Jason Schwartzman is—I th- I don't know how old he was at the time. He was clearly in his twenties, but no, he's playing. He wasn't. He was a teen. He was eighteen because he was in Slacker. No, he was in that. Not the. Not the. Uh... Slacker's plural. Ah. Yeah, he, which was a. Which was a two thousands movie, not the not the one from the nineteen ninety one. You're right. He's uh, he would have been eighteen because he was born in nineteen eighty, um, but he's playing a fifteen year old and probably the most precocious fifteen year old that you've uh, you've ever seen. Well, not since um, I guess Licorice Pizza might might have topped that a little bit. Uh, the reason why I know Jason Schwartzman is eighteen is because I looked up his age recently, thinking like, oh, he must be in his early fifties, and then I'm like, no, he's only like two years older than me, and I feel very uh, inadequate. He's still older than me too, so that's he was good. Still playing in Phantom Planet at this time. Oh yeah, for those unfamiliar with Phantom Planet, they wrote the song "California," which was the theme song to the OC. However, when that rec- when the OC blew up, Phantom Planet actually contained no more original members. There's a funny moment when uh, a band, when Phantom Planet played at the American Music Awards, containing none of the original members who wrote or act, sang or performed on the song "Phantom Planet," or sorry, "California." However, they perform the song California. Anyways, Kit, back to you. Um, yeah, so just a just a good film about uh, you know one of those like I don't know private schools and stuff. But of course, he does end up going to high school, and I don't know. It's just got a good rhythm to it. They're both obsessed with uh, Olivia Williams. I mean, 
uh, fantastic needle drops which has kind of become uh, a wes anderson's hallmark of course you've got the great uh, like the kinks uh, needle drop well, uh, a quick one while he's away by the who is probably like the best needle drop in that movie interestingly on the soundtrack a quick one while he's away was on the actual soundtrack release yeah. was from their live at leeds album yeah. whereas the version in the um in the movie is from is the album version uh yeah yeah and uh, it's it well it's got a lot of great uh nothing in the world uh, can stop me worrying about that girl is the uh, the kinks also some uh, uh, mark uh, mothersbaugh did the soundtrack for it he did the score um and he would go on to do the score in many more wes anderson films most notably uh the life aquatic with steve Sizu. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, Yoko. That's a fantastic needle drop. Um, man, what a good movie. Lots of Cat Stevens needle drops in that movie as well. At, at least one. I see. I'm, I'm just looking there's at the... There's uh, wind, and there's... Here comes my baby, and there might be one or two others. I also got Making Time by the Creation. There, there's a Stones needle drop for sure. I, I think it's I'm Still Waiting. It's definitely like mid-60s Stones. I don't see the Stones yeah, on the... It's on the CD soundtrack. Okay. Uh, I believe you. Uh, I saw this uh, a couple months ago. Ooh la la by the faces. Obviously, that's a great. That's a great song. Um, man, it's just a. It's just a good movie. I think it's Wes Anderson's best. It, it captures his style so well. You've even got like the little, uh, little title card chapters, which he he started doing. Uh, this is uh, this is his first movie after uh, Bottle Rocket, which is the least Wes Anderson of all, all his films. And I I think this kind of cemented his style um for viewing audiences and of course he'd go on to do uh, life aquatic uh royal tannenbaums and a, and a lot of great movies but i i think for me personally rushmore is the best i don't know what you guys think um i, I have to say rushmore is the best yeah graham what, what's your opinion of wes anderson yeah um i kind of go with the life aquatic with steve suzu it's, it's up there yeah that's my favorite of the bunch I haven't seen that uh, that one again in a while. I did recently watch The Royal Tannenbaums. Of course, that's a 2001 movie, so it doesn't qualify. But I still think Rushmore beats it. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, uh, I've, that's all I've got to say about that movie, but uh, that's my pick. So my next pick, uh, I'm going with 1993's Joe Dante-directed Matin A. Good one. Uh, starring, of course, John Goodman, uh, Kathy Moriarty, Simon Fenton, Ormy Katz, Lisa Jacob, Kelly Martin, Jesse Lee Stauffer, Lucinda Jenny, James Villamar, Robert Picardo, that's what I was waiting to get to, and of course, the great, the one, the only, Dick Miller. I've seen like two Lucinda Jenny movies in the last month. Thelma and Louise was a rewatch, and I saw Peggy Sue got married for the first time a few days ago. Yeah, she definitely had a late 80s, early 90s like period where she was in a lot. She was also in Born on the Fourth of July, yeah. uh, Leaving Las Vegas, Practical Magic, Remember the Titans whole bunch but this film of course takes place on the opening day of a new sci-fi atomic horror movie called mant he's half man half ant he's mant um in a small florida town during the cuban missile crisis um focusing on one of the the sons of a uh, of, a, of a navy serviceman who is deployed during the during the uh, cuban missile crisis and it's just a snapshot of a po- point in time where like you could still go and see there's still kitty matinees but there was also, and like everyone had atomic fever on the brain, like it was very terrifying what could happen, the world could blow up, especially like during the Cuban Missile Crisis when we almost went, you know, head to head in a nuclear exchange with uh, with Soviet with the Soviet Union. And this movie just kind of like is a snapshot of that time and it sums up the feelings and anxiety while still 
doing a great job of showing what movie culture was like at the time because movies were were huge like uh even though tv had kind of like eroded a lot of the people a lot of movies was still a popular thing for kids to go to and the john goodman's performance in it like he's clearly doing a riff on william castle even though castle never appeared in any of his ads so it's kind of a combination of william castle and alfred hitchcock you know with rumble rama and and all kinds of like you know the uh, william castle's famous like the tingler where you put buzzers underneath the seats um so yeah, it's just a great coming-of-age story set against the Cuban Missile Crisis. Phil, what are your thoughts on Matinee? Matinee is one I rewatched a few years ago, and I remember watching it, I think, around the time when it first, this would have been when it first came out on video, and just, like, so much of it went over my head at that age because I just didn't get a lot of the movie references. I knew nothing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of jokes about the beats uh, as well. Like, it was Lisa Jacobs' character. Her, she's the daughter of, like, the beat. She has the beatnik parents, uh, so it was just a lot more. I I enjoyed it then, but it was just that much more enjoyable on rewatch a few years ago. And uh, it's great seeing Kathy Moriarty in movies. And um, yeah, good Omri, good casting of Omri Katz. I mean, like he's he was like a Joe Dante regular because he was the star of uh, Erie, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Hocus Pocus is not a Joe Dante production, but like he was kind of ubiquitous in the mid '90s there. Yeah, yeah, it's he was just good and uh, really, yeah, I just really, really enjoyed this film. Um, great soundtrack, well, of good early '60s uh, pop hits, and um, I mean, it's just it just takes you back to another time. Uh, it was a huge flop. I saw it as well. This was a CBC summer classic, like for I think three years after it came out. Every summer, CBC advertised we're showing the John Goodman hit, even though it wasn't a hit film, Matinee. Uh, which my cousin really wanted to watch because he thought there was going to be a nuclear war in the movie. He's like, oh, it's going to be a nuclear war movie. It'll be sick, like the Terminator. And then he'd watch it and be like, this is stupid. Um, but yeah, Kit, what are your thoughts on Matinee? I remember uh, watching it back in the day. That was another uh, me and my dad VHS rental, much uh, much safer one than uh, Lost Highway, obviously. I thought you saw it in theaters because you were a big John Goodman fan. No, no, I didn't see that one in theaters, but I was a big enough uh, John Goodman film uh, fan that um, I... I you know, lobby to, to watch the rental when it was a movie night. Um, so that's what we watched. And, um, of course, we had a movie viewing at uh, in your backyard. It was actually in Vanessa's old backyard. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. But, uh, yeah, the sound didn't quite work from what I recall, but everybody enjoyed the movie. It was a little quiet, but it was it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. Um, yeah, so that was matinee. So, Phil, what's your next pick? My next pick is... The Todd Haynes directed Julianne Moore starring 1995 movie Safe, which is just uh, such an eerie, unsettling vibe, and it just has so many layers to it, and it's just, I don't know, like, words can't quite convey, it's just a terrific movie. Well, what's, what's, I I need to watch that one, so maybe um, avoiding... Serious spoilers. What's what's the movie about? So Julianne Moore, she is a uh, housewife. I th- I want to say it's a certain San Fernando Valley. Anyway, it's somewhere in the outer reaches of Los Angeles, and she essentially becomes allergic to her entire physical environment. She gets you know like she she can't breathe. She has panic attacks. She gets random nosebleeds, etc. And she winds up at a uh, this cultish New Age retreat. And does she get better? 
who knows <laughs> not really a spoiler it's kind of a hard movie to spoil yeah i've asked full disclosure i've never been able to finish a single todd haynes film that i've ever started oh why is that because i just find his stories like not good um i, I despise this uh, bob dylan movie um oh that's the um i'm not there i'm not there yeah i remember like well everybody likes the Kate blanchett performance there but i thought it was overblown Anyways, um, I don't know. Not, well, I not, like every Todd Haynes movie. Yeah. That's my bias. Um, You're a Haynes head. Yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, <laughs> any other thoughts on uh, Safe before we move on? Uh, not really. Cool. Kit, what's your next pick? It recently got a Criterion release, didn't it? it I think so. It got a Criterion release a while back. It, um, it regularly streams on the Criterion channel, though. Okay. All right. Um, I am going to go with... Uh, I watched Eraserhead. It was a Kazaa download on my laptop. I saw it for the first time in theaters. Because I'm a sin. That, that, that was literally the first movie I ever downloaded. It wasn't available on any physical media whatsoever at the time. So it was just this horrible rip that I downloaded off Kazaa of all places. Ah, uh, Kazaa. No, Boo Kazaa gave my computer viruses and killed it. Uh, yeah, if you used it too late. It was a, a late period Kazaa was really rife with viruses. Um, all right, so my next film, we're going to go with more auteur cinema. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to not pick so many film bro ones, but uh, again, these are ones that are just kind of at hand to my mind. But uh, we're going to go with uh, 1998, another 1998 film, The Thin Red Line. The Terrence Malick's return to filmmaking after, I think it was like almost 20 years away. It, it was exactly 20 years. Yeah. yeah, it had been since Days of Heaven, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, it was lingering in the shadow of Saving Private Ryan. All the angry uh, Saving Private Ryan heads going to see a thin red line and uh, demanding refunds. I also remember this is the movie that Adrian Brody was like the star of, and he got him out of the movie. He's been not in the movie. <laughs> he is in the movie. Like uh, he's just Adrian Brody thought he was the star, and then when you go to watch the movie, he's not the star. But uh, the notable, he still got top billing because like the cast is listed in alphabetical order. <laughs> The, the notable um, cuts from this movie include Robert De Niro and George Clooney. And Mickey Rourke, yes. And, and Mickey Rourke, who apparently filmed a lot of scenes, and uh, he has this story where he tells where he's like, he brought friends and stuff to premiere. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm one of the stars of this movie. And then he's just not in it. He just, uh, Terrence Malick's uh, cutthroat approach to editing films to get the story right um, is present here. But my God, what a cast. I mean, he had to choose. We've got Sean Penn. We've got Jim Caviezel, who, if you were going to point to a star, I guess Jim Caviezel is kind of the star. Uh, this is long before and he... And what a star! Uh, yeah. Long before he uh, dropped off the deep end of QAnon, etc. Jesus Christ himself! We're, we're just skipping over Passion of the Christ, right? I, Passion of the, I like Passion of the Christ. I will defend it as a movie. It's uh, In terms of its politics and stuff, I don't know. That's another discussion. But uh, it... I'm shocked the Italians were not upset because they're the bad guys in that movie. Like, there's just no good Italian in that film. Well, yeah, well, also the Jews. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a discussion for another uh, podcast. Um, we've got uh, Ben Chaplin, Elias Coteas, uh, formerly mentioned, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson, Nick Nolte does a great part. I don't even remember John C. Riley in this movie. He's apparently in it. John Travolta, do not remember him. Um, uh, George Clooney, as I mentioned. I think John Travolta and George Clooney were on the uh, cutting room floor. Uh, Kirk Acevedo, uh, who you might remember from Oz mm -hmm. in terms of other things. Jared Leto apparently is in this. Um, Thomas Jane, John Savage, Nick Stahl, Tim Blake Nelson um, apparently shows up. And again, it might just be they're in the background of a shot. 
where a baby bird is dying in the grass or something like that. Like that's that's just uh, Terrence Malick's approach to filmmaking. But there's such a poetic quality to this film. It's uh, it's leaps and bounds better than Saving Private Ryan. Sorry, Steven Spielberg. But this is the definitive World War II movie from the 90s, in my opinion. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's set in the Pacific theater, so not uh, not in the Europe European one, and they're just uh, they're trying to take an island. It's never really explained why they're trying to take this island or what the hell they're doing there. Um, there's these great shots of uh, tall grass blowing in the wind, and the and the soldiers have to make it up a mountain. Um, there's uh, varying degrees of chaos, and then just quiet little poetic moments in between. And uh, Terrence Malick captures them all so well. Um, I think this could be my favorite World War II film. Um, what do you guys think? Um, I was never that into it for whatever reason. I probably just need to give it another chance. I generally love Malick. Like, Badlands and Days of Heaven are among my favorite movies ever. But, like, I saw Thin Red Line in the theater. I was kind of amped about it, and then I watched it a number of years later, and I was also kind of amped about it, but I still think I need to watch it again because I'm definitely missing something. Yeah, it's it's kind of a vibes movie. It's yeah. it's like there is a sort of a plot again, and the plot is just militaristic. It's like they're trying to take this mountain, and then they run into some problems, and they come into a. a, a I love a, vibes. So <laughs> it's very much a vibe film. This is World War Two vibes at its finest, because you've got um, the soldiers trying to make the most of their downtime. Um, uh, it starts with Jim Caviezel on an island, just kind of playing with the local kids and stuff like that, and having a having a fun time. And then they've got to deploy. Um, you do get the kind of the classic um, scenes in a village where the the soldiers are being maybe a bit too brutal with the villagers who are just like, man, we just live here. We don't we don't know. Um, and it's it's just a it's a great movie. I don't know what else to say about it. Graham, do you have any thoughts on Thin Red Line? I have not seen it. Have you not seen Thin Red Line? I know, I know, I know. I'm sure I rented it from Queen Video but didn't actually watch it. I just think I ran out of time and then I just have yet to get around to it. But I, I should see it because I'm a big, I'm a fan of Malik. I was one of the people that enjoyed The Tree of Life. I, the Tree of Life is one of my favorite films. Yeah. Uh, of the 2010s, I think it came out in 2010. Yeah. I'd early, say Early 2010s, probably 2011 or something. And I think we did that uh, on this podcast. We did our top 10 of the uh, 2010s and I'm pretty sure that I included, included Tree of Life because that was just blowing my little mind. Uh, when I first saw it, I, I loved it. I love the fact that he doesn't really care about uh, the star quality of actors so much. He's like, these are background shots if I need them to be. Um, there's that infamous story from The New World, which I've never seen, actually, and I need to see The New World. That's good. Um, but uh, Christopher Plummer did this whole scene and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he was. Uh, they did a number of takes of Christopher Plummer doing the scene. And then the end result is um, uh, Terrence Malick including a faraway shot where you can't even hear the dialogue. <laughs> and that's just uh i kind of appreciate that uh, a director who's like the real magic comes in the edit and uh sticks to that principle i kind of dig it okay and with that we've come to the midway point of our uh, top 10 so we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back if you're looking for more horror outside of the mainstream look no further than unsung horrors a podcast about underseen horror movies i'm lance and i'm erica Every other week, we'll cover a horror movie with fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. We'll even give you double feature recommendations to pair with the movies we discuss. From gothic to shot on video, from slashers to comedies, from giallo to j-horror, we'll cover all the subgenres. So join us as we unearth these hidden gems of horror. 
Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Okay, so my next pick for one of my favorite films, uh, I'm actually going, I'm going to do the cheeky thing of a three-way tie. Ah, boo. It is uh, Witt Stillman's 1990s trilogy of Metropolitan Barcelona and the Last Days of Disco. Um, eh, yeah, we're just, that doesn't matter if you close the door. Those those jets are still flying overhead and they're still super loud. Um, so I, I chose this trilogy because it's really hard because I like all of them individually in different ways. Like Last Days of Disco was the first one I of his I ever saw. It's probably the most well known of his because it had Chloe Sevigny and um, and uh, uh, Jennifer Beals and it got a big release. It it kind of got swallowed up by the the movie Fifty Four that came out the same year or just after it. Um, and but it's probably the most best known. It's got that great disco soundtrack, and then of course there is Barcelona, which is probably like the lesser scene of the three. Um, although now that it's on the Criterion Channel or Criterion Channel, Criterion Criterion Collection, uh, it's probably better known now. Like they actually have a box set of all three of his movies. Um, but I really like that film. It's Chris Eigelman and the other guy in. Um, put Mira Servino on the map. That's true. Put Mira Servino on the map. Um, Chris Eigelman and. It's Chris Eigelman and Taylor Nichols in Barcelona. It's it's a take on an officer and a gentleman, but what if they were two different people? Again, it's just witty. It's it's more of Whit Stillman's witticisms of uh, of bourgeois bougie Americans, but now they're in a different um, in a different culture and defending their their culture, like especially specifically cheeseburgers. Um, and then of course you get the original sonic boom of his career, Metropolitan, which I really really love. It it's a scrappy like low budget independent film. That got him an Oscar nomination for the you know uh, for best screen or best original screenplay, and it just looks into the the world of cotillions and um, and high society from a a poor person whose family used to be rich and now they're not rich anymore. So now he has to still try and and uh, and appear to be wealthy and cultured and all of that stuff. Um, Phil, you've seen all these movies. What are your thoughts on them? I enjoy them all. Uh, Barcelona is my least favorite, though. Ooh, spicy. It's not that spicy. It's still a good movie. Yeah, yeah. they're all good, just to different de- different yeah. degrees. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're definitely not. None of those movies are equal in my eyes. I, I think I tend to flip flop. Metropolitan used to be my favorite for the longest time, and but it's nowadays it's the Last Days of Disco for me. Yeah, I rewatched the Last Days of Disco recently, and it's it's just like such an interesting time where like movies could just have people hang out and talk and even I watched it with uh, with filmmaker Amy Force and she was like it's just so interesting how like these people are like all earn it the way that they act and the way that the dialogue goes they're very earnest and they're very and what they're talking about even though what they're talking about isn't necessarily earnest topics um, whereas now if it was like in the um, she compared it like if you look at something like something contemporary like what's that HBO show with the teenagers that everyone likes that's in Dias in Euphoria in Euphoria they'd all just be lounging there being like oh this is terrible and awful blah and I'm like yeah that's true and uh, I like it I like that the craft of dialogue is actually on full display in all three of these films that there's a really tailored performance and it's a very specific sect of society that's interacting with other societies um and there, there's been a lot of what Stillman hate recently because it's like, oh, he focuses on rich people. But it's like it's rich people failing. And it's also like about the rot of that that culture in the 1990s, how it essentially like they were all playing up to roles that no longer existed. Kit, have you seen any of these films? I have not. No, I'm sorry. I'm the least cultured of, uh, of our little trio here. You'd best educate yourself, son. <laughs> I better, I guess. All right. And so that's what Stillman. Uh, sell me on it. What's uh, what's give me a little pitch. Well, I kind of talked about it. So The Last Days of Disco 
which is probably his most it's set in that's the one i've heard of yeah so it's set in the very early 80s and it even starts with the title card like the very early 80s so it's like and the interesting thing is that they're all dressed kind of contemporary for the 1990s which also kind of looks contemporary for now to a degree mm-hmm. um so the film has gone through eras of like being reflective but also current which is an odd an odd way to to, to place a film that is ostensibly a period piece but it's basically uh, focuses on chloe savigny and um Oh, God, why am I blanking on her Kate name? Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. Uh, who were f- not really friends in college, but just knew each other. And now they, they've kind of become roommates and friends by sheer effect of, and like, hey. And work together in publishing. And work together in publishing. And they also, like, they go to the discos. But this is not the discos of John Travolta. It's not the dirty, sweaty discos. It's kind of a bit more cultured, a bit more refined. And it actually was uh, based on what Stillman's own experiences in the 1970s, where he's like, I love disco because it kind of, like, it created a social scene, and it wasn't like the dirtiness of like 1970s, like long, hairy, dirty rockers. Um, you could actually dress up and be, you know, stylish, and not just have to wear jeans and a jean jacket and grow your hair long. And he liked that, like, like the culture that it inspired, where you can actually like discuss and sit and and then go and dance. And it kind of like reflected for him. It reflected an earlier time with a different set of social structures, other than drinking beer in a dim, dimly lit bar. Um, but he also is very, it's also very biting because it's aware that like the whole, I guess you could say the whole 20th century, like publishing, especially where it's like the publishing industry, which by the late nine, late 1990s, it was still doing well. It was really in the two thousands when it really crashed hard. Um, it's, it was kind of on its way out in the way that it, it exists, existed at the time. And that's what the film kind of represents. But, um, I don't know, Kate, you're looking at heat on your phone. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry, uh, did that seem enticing to you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like all movies, so I should check it out. Plus, I like uh, Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale. So, and you will fall in love with Chris Eigelman. I, I can't wait to fall in love with Chris Eigelman. Yeah, he's... Chris Eigelman, he's a uh, Whit Stillman regular. He's in the first three Whit Stillman movies, and you might also know him from Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming. That is true. I've never seen it. Yeah, and Taylor Nichols is great in it too. He was in all three of uh, yeah. Chris Ackland, or sorry, of Whit Stillman's first three films. Uh, but yeah, I really, really dig it. And also, um, Whit Stillman's uh, 2016, 17 film, Love and Friendship, was a reunion of Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny from uh, Last Days of Disco. Really enjoyed it. It was, and, yeah, it was the first time he had adapted a. Well, it's the only. I think it was the first time that Jane Austen book was ever adapted as well. That's true. It's an elusive, like, it's a rare Jane Austen adaptation that's not Emma or um, the other one. Pride and Prejudice. That's the one. Um, and yeah, and the interesting thing about Last Days of Disco is that with Stillman's career kind of took a break after this like it wasn't a big hit but it was a big hit on video like this was the era when you could make a movie for eight million dollars and then have it become a huge grossing film on home video and much like lost highway it was a film that i first saw on showcase because they would show that film they would show lost highway but um but the interesting thing is that he was hired to do a novelization and he didn't actually just like translate the script he actually wrote a proper novel that like expanded upon the ideas of the film and changed the the like this perspectives in certain scenes and uh, i still haven't read it there's a, i think one copy that's like a reference only at the library um but i intend to read it one of these days so phil what's your next pick it is oh going on the theme of elias Coteus <laughs> and a token canadian pick and a token pervert pick uh David Cronenberg's 1996 movie Crash. 
Yeah. Hell yeah. Set set in Toronto. Yeah. You, you can see the uh, Lakeshore Boulevard signs in the uh, back back of the, some of those sex scenes. R.I.P. Gardner Expressway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's hope the rest of it dies soon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good old Dave Cronenberg, Canada's Uncle Dave, coming in with his own weird pervy picture about car crashes. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. You know, it's it's James Spader at a Spaderiest, and uh, the the body brace that I think it's Amanda Plummer's in in the film. Rosanna Arquette. Sorry, Rosanna Arquette. I got them confused. Yes, That's your pulp fiction confusion. Yeah. So the the body brace that Rosanna Arquette uh, wears is proudly on display in the uh, Tiff Bell light box, yeah. soon to be just the Tiff light box, uh, in downtown Toronto. I heard about that? Bell's pulling out, huh? Scary times. Yeah. No, that that body brace it was part of the Cronenberg exhibit, and then it just became a fixture for over the last few years. Mm-hmm. That in the uh, that weird monster creature from Naked Lunch. Yes, he's hanging out in the he's in the Tiff members lounge right now. It's always kind of odd because you go up and you think it's a person standing there, but really it's that weird monster. No, yeah, it's the mugwump. Sure. Um, I went through a William S. Burroughs phase in high school. I thought I did, but no, I did not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add. I mean, it's it it's it's Crash. You know, it's it's not the 2006 movie. It's the 1996 movie. It's a vibe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's 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 a, such a horny movie. Of course, Holly Hunter, the great Holly Hunter, in that one as well. Um, yeah, I just watched that for the first time a couple of years ago. I never got. I know they used to show it on Showcase and stuff like that. And for some reason, I I feel like the scars and car crash stuff kind of scared me away. Even though I was also a horny teenager uh, around the time when it came out. Roseanne Arquette's vaginal leg gash was just not doing it for you. <laughs> no, no, that that was terrifying to me. Um, but man, what what a good film! Uh, Elias Cotia is such a such a psychopath. Also, I love the whole thing where they're trying to recreate famous car crashes uh, down to the detail, but somehow survive them. Like it's just this weird uh, underground cultural scene, which I'm not even sure if that exists. Maybe it does. I mean, I could see it happening, but it doesn't even matter if it does because Cronenberg creates it so perfectly um, that you can believe in it. Um, but man, yeah, wild. What a movie. Any final thoughts on Crash from you, Phil? Nope. All right, Kit, what's your next pick? Oh, well, you kind of spoiled it, Graham. Is it Heat? It is Michael Mann's 1995 L.A. crime saga, Heat. Um, had to pick a, pick a Michael Mann film. I mean, he did a number of good films. Uh, um, Last of the Mohicans, uh, also um, The Insider with Russell Crowe. And again, with Al Pacino. But this is, um, I mean, coming in the middle middle of the decade, uh, almost uh, kind of ties in between like um, uh, Tarantino had really brought, and, and Scorsese as well, had brought about like the crime picture as a, as a, as a thing. But it had, uh, well, I guess Tarantino was uh, L.A. based. But uh, this was such an epic, epic film. Uh, also brings together, for the first time, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, who had somehow not acted together before then. They're only in it together briefly. They've got that one diner scene. So it always felt kind of like, I remember at the time thinking it was almost kind of like a... And the scene where they hold hands at the end. At the end, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like a spoiler alert because um, uh, Al Pacino guns down um, Robert De Niro and then they hold hands because uh, they've got that mutual respect. And then in The Irishman, it's Robert De Niro who guns down Al Pacino. 
but they don't hold hands. They don't hold hands, but they're best of friends. It's it's <laughs> they're two sides of the same coin. <laughs> so they're almost kind of uh, spiritually related in that sense. But uh, and Heat has obviously just much like um, a Pulp Fiction has generated a number of copycats. Uh, most notably, like Den of Thieves is is like the poor man's version of Heat. If you've ever seen it, that's a film Twitter darling. Uh... Well, they're calling it the garbage crime genre. Is the is the heat knockoffs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, these uh, this is so well done. Uh, Robert De Niro's uh, Neil McCauley uh, character, of course, Val Kilmer, John Voight, uh, Tom Sizemore, whole skeevy Tom Sizemore in a great role. Um, it's it's his little catchphrase that kind of tips off the police. The action slick. is the juice. Oh, slick. Yeah, slick. He, he calls, calls everybody him, slick. He calls everybody slick, which apparently just don't do it if you're a criminal. Just uh, try to avoid those kinds of. Uh, uh, I guess little personalizations. But yeah, the action is the juice is a uh, bum- car bumper sticker staple from up for the heat heads. Oh yeah, of course a, a young Natalie Portman. Of course, we got Tom Noonan in here, uh, who is also in uh, Michael Mann's uh, Manhunter. Don't sleep on Xander Berkeley. Uh, Xander Berkeley is fantastic Hank in there. Hank, Hank Azaria in that that oh. fantastic scene. Oh, yeah, I've seen this movie at least a dozen times, and I just noticed on my last viewing there's an uncredited Bud Court uh, part. Oh wow, cool! As the diner owner that uh, Dennis Haysbert decks. Man, Bud Court uh, just yeah. pops scummy, up into so many scummy Bud Court. <laughs> We should also point out that this film is actually a remake of L.A. Takedown, a TV movie that Michael Mann made in the 80s. See, I did not know that. You're, you're giving me new information here, Graham. about Henry Rollins in an Armani suit. Henry Rollins as William uh, Fickner's um, bodyguard, I believe. Isn't that correct? Right. Um, and then, oh man, so many other... And Danny Trejo as a character named Trejo. Um, and yeah, Hank Azarian, that, uh, that great scene with Al Pacino. <laughs> Where he's because uh, he he's seeing Ashley Judd on the sly and uh, and Al Pacino's trying to interrogate him and uh, Hank Azaria's like oh, I don't know what I was doing and uh, Al Pacino in one of his best uh, ch- scene chewing performances is like eye bulging yeah eye bulging he's like because uh, she's got a great ass <laughs> yeah you just you just peek the the mic on that one but we should point out there is a Tarantino connection so Eddie Bunker in Reservoir Dogs who plays Mr. Blue he is the basis of the character that John Voight plays in the film because Eddie Bunker was a real life criminal who went to jail I think it was a bank robber or a fence or something and then when he got out he became an, uh, an advisor for Hollywood movies so Michael Mann knew Eddie Bunker well and created the role of uh, the role that John Voight plays as uh, as an homage to him and if you actually look at John Voight in the movie and look at Eddie Bunker in Reservoir Dogs they kind of look alike Eddie Bunker was also a crime writer after he got out of jail. And the movie Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman was based on Eddie Bunker novel. Mm-hmm. And Dustin Hoffman kind of like looks, looks like, like Eddie Bunker, Bunker in that yeah. movie, too. Am, am I mistaken? Eddie Bunker in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Am I mistaken? Danny Trejo is also an ex-con, right? He did, he he did time before he became an actor, and so he kind of knew that world as well. Yep. Um, he, I think he was working... Uh, doing like halfway housework uh, when he first started acting. Oh man, Jerry Jeremy Piven's in that one. I don't even remember as Doctor oh, yeah. Bob. Oh right, yeah. Dr. Rob, Bob. Robert De Niro asks him for his shirt. He's the oh, oh Christ. Tone Loke is apparently in yeah, that film. Right. I don't even remember that. He's the guy that meets with uh, Vincent Hanna, aka Al Pacino, and I think is he the one that gives away the term slick? Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another great interrogation scene from uh, Al Pacino, I'm not going to quote it here, but uh, man, what a good movie! Three hours and ten minutes long. I uh, a couple it zips by though. It zips by. I remember. Um, it's the kind of film where 
I mean, there is some dicey subject matter. I know there's the uh, there's the uh, the serial killer uh, played by not Ted Levine. <laughs> no, everyone <laughs> thinks this, but he plays another character. No, I can't remember who's the. Um... Ted, oh. Le- Ted Levine's part of like Al Pacino's detective team. He has a mustache. Yeah, that's right. Kevin Gage is uh, plays Wayne Grow, who's uh, the psychopath serial killer, who who really is kind of the problem here. He's yeah. he's the guy who causes the issues for the crew. For Robert De Niro's crew, because he he executes people for no good reason. Um, Kevin Bage, Gage is like thirtieth build. Uh, I looked up his Wikipedia. He was like Kelly Preston's first husband, certain in the mid eighties. Oh man. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So I showed this to my uh, my thirteen year old nephew uh, last <laughs> summer, but he can kind of get away with it, and he was so into it, like he'd never seen the movie before. And I remember I I probably first watched that when I was his age, so I'm like, I'm sure it's fine. And then I'd sort of forgotten about the whole Wayne Gross subplot. I'm like, well, all right, so some dicey things are happening here, Rowan, but I'm sure you can handle it. And uh, he was loving it. Cool. All right, so that's your final thought on uh, Heat? Yeah, yeah. Is that your uh, favorite um, man film? or? It's up there. It's definitely that or, I mean, I really like Miami Vice and I really also like Manhunter. But, uh, yeah, Heat probably. But Miami Vice, a close second. Also, The Insider is incredible. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge fan of Thief. Thief, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With that fantastic scene of James Conn walking on the beach. Mm-hmm. With the, the Tangerine Dream score. So I think that actually the, the song of that is called Beach Scene. And, and we're, all, uh, we're all looking forward to Ferrari. I mean, we'll probably see that in theaters, right, guys? Oh, yeah. And Heat 2. Please, let's make Heat 2. That book was good. Oh, Graham, I forgot to ask you. You've, you've read Heat 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, plans are uh, to make Heat 2, and that's going to happen. Well, we don't know. I thought it was going to happen, but now it's kind of like a maybe. Okay. I see it on Letterboxd as related film, Heat 2. Not released <gasps> yet. <laughs> oh, I, I hope it's happening. <laughs> but uh, it would be great if that happened. Because they were talking to Adam Driver about playing the Al Pacino role. That's that's the book cover though. Who's listed as being in cast? Anyone? Adam Driver. Adam Driver People? as Neil McCauley. Wow, oh. he's gonna play young Robert De Niro. Does not look. Who cares? He's, that's yeah. the he's, thing. He's like a foot taller than De Niro as well. All yeah. these, uh... Have you guys seen the, the the photo? I showed it to Phil the other day. I'll show it to you now. Uh, there's a there was a photo from Venice, taken of Adam Driver together with uh, with our good if, friend. If you want to see a height difference, watch the F word. Daniel Radcliffe standing right next to Adam Driver. There's mm-hmm. at least a one foot difference there so look at this photo kit and then look at uh, uh michael mann's feet he <laughs> wow adam driver is a tall tall man what's he six five does anybody know nah he's, he can't be that tall but it's also just hilarious that michael mann is standing his tippy toes next to adam driver I remember first seeing adam driver in uh inside lewin davis i remember i first saw him in girls where i thought he was a one-trick pony okay uh, my next film Moving on, we're doing Steven Soderbergh, probably my favorite director of all time, with his 1999 film The Limey. This film is another film that's reflexive of the 1960s, but not in a good way. Um, it's also the difference between like 1960s America, represented by Peter Fonda, and 1960s Britain, represented by by Terrence Stamp. Oh, Adam Driver's 6'2". That's not even that tall. Nah, you're like two inches taller than me, pal. I can take you. Um, <laughs> so the film stars Terrence Stamp, Louise Guzman, Lillian, uh, War- uh, Leslie Ann Warren, Barry Newman from from um, Vanishing Point, um, Nikki Cat in a great early role, Peter Fonda, of course, uh, Melissa George um, as uh, P- uh, Terrence Stamp star Jenny, and uh, Amelia Heinel as Adhera, Adhera who is the... Uh, the very like way too young love interest of um, of uh, of P- Peter Fonda's character Terry Valentine, who 
in fact, tells her at one point, like, oh, yeah, I was the one that suggested your name to your parents. And it's just like, you gross. One of, one of the toothiest uh, Peter Fonda uh, performances you'll ever see. He's always flashing those uh, those choppers. Mm-hmm. I also like the fact that the, the movie, so basically Terrence Stamp plays a, an ex-con who travels to America to find the man who he thinks killed, who, who uh, oh, no, he knows killed his daughter. And uh, and Luis Guzman basically acts as his partner, who is a friend of his daughter, and Peter Fonda was his daughter's like ex girlfriend, and uh, it's it's a lot of reflection on the '60s because they were both icons of the 1960s, like uh, Terrence Stamp being in Poor Cow, and Peter Fonda, of course, being in a bunch of Roger Corman movies, and of course, Easy Rider. And Terrence Stamp, of course, was in Tiarema. Right, um, and Superman the movie. That that film actually uses um, footage from uh, um, an old Terrence from Stamp Poor movie. Cow, yeah, yeah as uh, as oh, this is me as a young man. Mm-hmm. Flashbacks, and the film is also edited in a very um, elliptical way because they actually found out like when they they had the movie and it was just cut normally, it wasn't working. So they like really dug into the editing to try and find a way because it's about memory and how memory changes things, and it just is great. Like I just love this film. Um, it's fantastically non-linear, and I we we got to mention Luis Guzman's um, Che Guevara tank top, which he which he sports. It's fantastic fits from Luis Guzman. Oh, it's so good, so good. Um, and uh, I mean, and the other thing is that it was actually uh, Soderbergh homaged it in his own film in um, in Full Frontal. There's a scene set on an airplane where some characters look over, and they look over, and you see Terrence Stamp and the actress that he's speaking with on the plane at the start of the movie reciting the dialogue from it. So. There's almost like a mini Soderbergh universe of this film, but the fi- but the problem is in the mo- in Full Frontal, the scene on the airplane is actually a movie within a movie, um, so lots of layers going on. Phil, do you have any opinions on the Limey? I like it. Cool, Kit. Yeah, I remember uh, first seeing it around the time when it came out. Didn't really get it at the time, like it wasn't wasn't really about it. But I watched it uh, relatively recently, within the last five years, and uh, really come around on it. It's a fantastic film. Uh, yeah, and again, I love the nonlinear quality to it, and just kind of piecing together the puzzle, and it's exciting. Definitely. And that was the limey. So, Phil, what's your next pick? My next pick is Harmony Korine's directorial debut, 1997's Gummo, a favorite of uh, co-host Graham Shepard. It's got Linda Manns. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, Linda Manns's. Uh, Second last, she, Linda Mans showed up in two 1997 movies. She had a uh, she had like a 10 second cameo in the game, the, the adventure movie. But uh, she has a slightly more prominent role in Gummo as uh, one of the main characters. It's there aren't really any there's no protagonist in Gummo. This is like a big ensemble uh, set in a uh, dilapidated, uh, impoverished, uh, semi post apocalyptic town in ohio but anyway the kid who's in on the poster is named solomon and uh linda mans plays his very eccentric mother famously referenced in the uh, movie that we've reviewed on here belly yes (laughs) (laughs) very cleverly referenced in the movie belly and the movie has um a very eclectic soundtrack of uh, black metal and uh, Roy Orbison. Oh, you said uh, Joey Badass also sampled uh, some dialogue. Yes, Joey Badass did sample some dialogue from Gummo. There are some uh, kids going door to door selling chocolates, and then you see this scene that there's a, at the end of the movie where the kids are uh, 
counting their money it's, and they're just sort of bragging about all the money they earned uh, selling chocolates door to door and that's the bit of dialogue that uh, gets sampled cool Graham is uh, curiously silent on the topic of gummo I haven't seen it and uh, and I will I will watch it um it's it's interesting because I always um I used to think that Harmony Harmony Corrine's uh, debut was kids. Of course, he just wrote that. He didn't uh, he didn't direct it. But that was also very one of the most popular movies in my high school for all the wrong reasons. Like kids just loved that, and it's like it's a movie about rape. <laughs> but they loved the skater kid uh, aspect of it and doing drugs and hanging out and skateboarding, and that's all they cared about. I think it was around this time that David Letterman kicked uh, Harmony Corrine off of the the Late Show with David Letterman. Yes, because he went through Meryl Streep's purse, I believe. Because he's a scumbag. Well, he was really high on crack and heroin at this time. Which is scumbag behavior, to be fair. Um, uh, later, uh, Harmony Kareen, like, I am one of the few people who didn't really like Spring Breakers, but I do feel like I should give that a rewatch. Uh, just did not hit me at the time, and I thought it was too on the nose. Spring Breakers is a watchable movie. Um, I love Spring Breakers. I've been I've been meaning to watch the Beach Bum because um, it looks good. And apparently, uh, R.I.P. Jimmy Buffett. There is a, an impromptu um, duet with Snoop Dogg and Jimmy Buffett in that film, which I have to see. There sure is, <laughs> and an abundance of I've, you've never seen so much PBR in your life. <laughs> well, I guess not since uh, maybe Blue Velvet. Yeah, Blue Velvet has nothing on Beach Bum in terms of PBR representation. And that was Guomo. Guomo? <laughs> That's how I've been asking it. Guomo. Um, all right, uh, Kit, what's your next pick? Oh man, we're sticking with the obvious here. Um, this is uh, a shout out to Radiohead. There are no alarms and no surprises on this list. Um, we're... Speaking of 1997, <laughs> well, we're going back to 1990. We're going to the start of the decade. Uh, the film that famously lost to Dances with Wolves. We are talking about Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. And of course, I think um, Casino, which is the spiritual sequel to Goodfellas, very much a similar movie. Also, I mean, Scorsese had some really good Kundun and uh, Age of Innocence. He had some good uh, 90s output. Uh, but his two big, like, mafioso crime movies are the ones that people remember, which are Goodfellas and Casino. Goodfellas edges it a bit for being there first. I mean, you could argue that Joe Pesci pretty much almost plays the identical characters in both movies. Uh, but he won the Oscar for, uh, for Goodfellas. Also, one of the best Oscar acceptance speeches and one that celebrities should aim to follow, mm -hmm. which they don't, which uh, Joe Pesci just got up there and said, it's an honor, thank you, left the stage. That's all you need to say. People who know that they want to be thanked, don't worry about that. You're going to forget somebody and feel bad. It's twice as long as Hitchcock's acceptance for his lifetime Oscar. What did he say? Thank you. <laughs> so, so it was not an honor for, for Hitchcock. He did not consider it an honor. He just said thank you. Um, Goodfellas, um, man, w what a movie, uh, just an epic, um, also, obviously, what a cast, obviously, um, Paul Servino, Joe Pesci, uh, Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, uh, really, uh, a, not a breakout performance, because you could say, um, Something Wild was re his real breakout, uh, but, uh, man, what a leading man performance from Le Ray Liotta, who I don't think is a strong actor, but was, was directed so well in this movie that it comes off perfectly, especially his maniacal laughter. Um, Frank Vincent, of course, as the great Billy Bats. Um, lots of, like, um, 
one of the stories about this this movie is that there were guys like they they had some fake money and stuff like that on set and all this stuff and um and there were guys hanging around set that wanted to get on camera and uh, a producer had to take Scorsese aside and there's under no conditions can you let this man on camera he is he is a wanted criminal um so you know it's it's got that it's got that spice to it obviously it's a uh, uh, Scorsese kind of grew up around these guys it's a bit uh it's almost a comic book edition of that uh, it's uh, larger than life is what I mean to say, um, uh, based on the true story of Henry Hill, of course, uh, but uh, really done uh, done up big. Uh, just a fantastic movie, great performances, and uh, at, at its heart, it's, it's a movie about how fun it is to do crimes with the boys, which I think is something we can all relate to. Any thoughts on Goodfellas? Yeah, it's great. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to add? Nothing more to... Uh- I mean, it was Rachel an interesting Pesci uh, commentary. <laughs> no, no, it was it was such a turning point for Martin Scorsese because it kind of launched him. It's we 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 all now think of Martin Scorsese as being like the the titan of cinema, the legend. But this was the movie that really cemented his his place, I think, because it was this big sprawling epic. Um, yeah, he'd done like obviously uh, notable films like Taxi Driver and stuff like that that had been big. But also, everybody's uh, understanding of uh, Scorsese as a filmmaker who only does mafia films was cemented with Goodfellas as well, because he'd only done Mean Streets before, which was mafia-connected. And also, we should point out that a lot of the filmmakers of, of the new Hollywood area had petered out by this point. Like, Francis Ford Coppola had, like, kind of his, his ego had swallowed him whole. William Freakin was, like, on the skids. Um, well, Paul... Spielberg was still going strong. Yeah, Spielberg, but I mean, also, what's his uh, face? Um, last Michael Cimino. Michael Cimino hit the skids. Um, God, what's his name? The guy that that did Last Picture Show. Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich hit the. I mean, Peter Bogdanovich did okay with Mask, but that just was like a blip in his like downward spiral. And this was the movie that solidified like Scorsese is not just part of a trend. He is in fact a a distinct, unique voice in cinema. He has a way of telling stories that no one else did at that up until that point, and has been imitated but never duplicated. Again, uh, King of the Needle Drops. I don't know how prevalent uh, big needle drops were in movies, but man, uh, some really good ones here. Uh, then he kissed me during the the, the famous um, tracking shot where uh, Henry is. Uh, where uh, Ray Liotta is leading Lorraine Bracco through the back end of the restaurant, and then they get the front table. It's a it's a famous tracking shot. Just a just such a well made movie. There's a unique one where uh, when they're beating Billy Bats to death. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> there's a needle drop of Atlantis by Donovan. Oh wow! Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Of course, the uh, famous uh, "Go get your shine kit." Yes. <laughs> and they go use... get your shine box. Sorry, go get your shine yeah. box. Um, an early Michael Imperioli role and uh, a spider, yeah. And a great, uh, great needle drops for uh, the piano outro of Layla, and also it ended with uh, Sid Vicious's cover of "My Way." Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and also uh, Michael Imperioli does a little reference to Goodfellas. I remember in uh, the Sopranos, there's uh, I think in the first season. Uh, he kind of uh, he gets cowboyitis, as Tony calls it. Shoots a guy in the foot. And Shoots says, a guy in the foot, and the guy's like, "You shot me in the foot," and he's like, "It happens." Whackity schmackity do. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, good fellows. What can you say, Phil? What can you say? What can you say? It's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a bit far fetched that Robert De Niro plays a twenty nine year old, but you know, <laughs> it's not as far fetched as when he played a thirty five year old in The Irishman. It's it's true. It's true. And of course, he does age throughout the movie, so he's a, he actually the movie ends where he's older than he actually is in real life. Um, but man, what a good movie! Yeah, great. Are you good? Yeah, I I think I'm petered out on Goodfellas. 
Okay, moving on to my second-to-last pick. Uh, it is John Waters' 1994 satire, Serial Mom, starring Kathleen Turner, Sam Watterson, Ricky Lake, Matthew Lillard, um, uh, Mink Stoll, Mary Jo uh, Catlett, um, Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst, Tracy Lords, uh, Susan, uh, Suzanne Summers, and, of course, the band L7. Um, this movie is just great. It is super funny. It is super... It's a satire of... I guess the the tropes of the domestic uh, goddess, the domestic housewife. Um, like, what if you know the 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 mom on the street that's like super conservative, buttoned down, just turned out to be a serial killer who like wrote to Ted Bundy and uh, really was into Horschel Gordon Lewis movies and was still wholesome, but just like just liked offing people. It was and it's a great performance as well by Tracy Lords. I think she's great in it. Ricky Lake is great in it. Matthew Lillard is quite good. Sam Watterson is good. Um, it's a fun movie from top to bottom. And then it becomes a media circus because that's what we, we got with Trials in the 1990s. They all became media circuses. Um, Phil, what are your thoughts on Serial Mom? It's a fun one. Cool. Kit, what are your thoughts on Serial Mom? I, I liked it. I've only seen it once, and it was at one of your uh, your backyard parties. Uh, but that that's a, a really fun one um, from John Waters. Um, who's in the cast again? Uh, it's obviously beyond... Um... Kathleen Turner. Yeah, yeah. There's Sam Watterson, Ricky Lake, Matthew Lillard, Tracy Lords, Patty Hearst. Again, Patty Hearst of the uh, what is it? The the what was the Liberation Army that she was a part of? Symbionese Liberation Army. Right, the Symbionese Lo- Lo- uh, Liberation Army, and Suzanne Summers in a great cameo. Um, and of course, the band L Seven just just ripping it up. They were played. What was it? Gas Chamber in the film? I believe so. Yeah, it's the dynamite. Patty Hearst, of course, is of the Hearst Dynasty. Yes, and the. Simonese Liberation Army. Um, yeah, just a great film overall. And uh, I got nothing else to say. Phil, what's your next pick? Your second to last pick. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, it's hard for me to pick a Greg Araki movie, but I'm going to go with the third movie and his Teenage Apocalypse trilogy, 1997's Nowhere. I'm stuck on 1997. It, and- was, a turn- it was a turning point year because it really... It like... We were just slightly post-grunge, but we, we were yet to go new metal. You know, things were very up in the air. We had ska and swing going strong. Uh, it's before The Matrix happened, so we didn't really even have a an end-of-the-century uh, iconic film. Uh, it was a very interesting time. Both the fashions and the soundtrack of Nowhere do reflect this big time. Mm-hmm. Oasis was pretty huge. No Doubt was huge. Uh, Bush X were still kicking it. Um, just a, a weird cultural time. And yeah, Nowhere is a, another ensemble movie. The first two, of course, being uh, Totally Fucked Up, which is of the, um, which is pretty grounded for a Greg Araki movie. And then he just went just full on gonzo with Doom Generation. And Nowhere continues in that tradition, except it's rather plotless. Uh, ensemble uh la apocalypse movie yeah i've yet to see it uh so i can't really comment it it is being restored finally because greg araki's got his movies back like doom generation recently got restored so nowhere i believe is having a screening later this month in new york it's all cleaned up because it's it never made it past vhs so basically the only way to watch it is via you know like sketchy bootlegs that you had to download mm-hmm. illegally was, of course there was actually a screening of nowhere at ice cinema this wednesday in toronto so i'm wondering if it's probably taken from like a european blue uh, dvd or something it was probably a bootleg mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. Kit, do you have any thoughts on Nowhere or Gregoraki? I've never seen it. But it sounds good from what I'm hearing. Okay. <laughs> so, Kit, what is your second to last pick? Um, let's go um, continuing with my theme of obvious films uh, that should be picked. We're going to go. That's right, folks. Get ready for it. Drum roll is happening. I think you passed it. <laughs> We're going with 1993's um, Jurassic Park. Dun, 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 Holy crap, there's a dinosaur in the yard looking at me. Um, and a, lo- a big part of the reason this is on the list is because obviously I was uh, blown away watching it in theaters as a young lad. Um, but I rewatched it within the last um, three years. And man, th- those special effects hold up. Yes, I actually, uh, this was the first one I saw more than once in theaters. I saw it three times. Uh, once in Nova Scotia on vacation, once back home in Newfoundland, and then once on a school trip. And I, this movie was the movie for me. Like, this is, like, uh, I, it was going to be on my list until I heard it was going to be on your list, and then I knew we could talk about it. Because, like, this is the film that convinced me to be a paleontologist. So for, like, the next six years of my life, from age 9 to age 17, is a, oh, God, probably longer. I was like, no, I'm going to be a paleontologist. I'm going to, like, research dinosaurs. And then I just realized I wanted to make movies about dinosaurs. And this movie was just the absolute, like, when people talk about E.T., when they talk about Jaws, when they talk about Star Wars, when they talk about The Matrix, that was what this movie was for me. It was a huge, huge, like, just, oh, my God, impactful, I didn't know that art could be this way type film. Really, uh, I, I guess he had already been cemented as this, but Spielberg, as blockbuster king of the Cineplex, uh, was was around that time. He released Schindler's List same year. Yeah, it was almost uh, 20 years after Jaws. So, like, he... It was him proving, like, decade after decade he could still produce banger after banger. And, I mean, he even did, had big hits in the 2000s. He hasn't had anything that monumental lately. But, like, I mean, uh, we all remember Minority Report. Great film. Yeah, and uh, uh, less less good, but uh, War of the Worlds were, was, were big hits. His War of the Worlds remake was pretty good. Uh, also, he did some more serious work. Uh, Munich is a, is a decent film as well. Yeah, and uh, was, did he do Bridge of Spies? Yes, he did. Yep, yeah. that's that's him. I haven't seen that one, but mm-hmm. uh, been meaning to. And of uh, course, he also he also did the uh, Catch Me If You Can, which was a big fun film from the two mm-hmm, thousands. Mm-hmm. But but Jurassic Park was what like just kind of was just like. No filmmaker before him had produced such big blockbuster hits so far, so consistently over such a long period of time. Even though, I mean, he was coming off of like doing Hook, which is a bit of a, it was a, a financial success, but it was a critical, critical flop. And of course, the film Always, which he didn't, didn't. Oh, really, yeah, that, that, yeah. Yeah, did not do well. And I mean, Empire of the Sun, which looking back on it is a great film, but like now, but at the time, no one wanted to see like a, a sad movie about war from Steven Spielberg. And I mean, during all this time, too, he was still cranking out Indiana Jones sequels like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And it's like just four years after that, he does four years after that, you know, he crams in all those movies and then he does Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. It's something that has not been repeated since. He's a one for me, one for them guy. But both of these felt like they were they were for him. Like he he actually before Jurassic Park was published in 1990, he optioned it from Michael Crichton just on the concept of. He asked Michael Crichton what he was working on, and Michael Crichton's like, well, I don't really want to talk about it because it's still being developed, but it's about dinosaurs and DNA. And Spielberg was like, I'm, I want to like option this right now, even before there's a book finished. And that's why the movie and the book are so dramatically different, because they were being developed at the same time simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. The T-Rex is a much bigger deal in the, uh, in the book, 
much bigger pain in the neck and it's the raptors that are the uh mm -hmm. obviously we have uh in toronto we have a basketball team named after this movie specifically because that's um the raptors became a team in i think 1995 obviously jurassic park was still in the consciousness and it was a fan vote unfortunately and so the fans were like raptors and that's why we still have the toronto raptors and we have our very own jurassic park we do yes <laughs> that's what they call it when all the fans get together uh who can't afford tickets because they're they've been priced out um but man what a what a great film also laura dern is is fantastic in this 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 film also gives you sexy jeff goldblum um and um i, I don't know if steven spielberg always does this but uh casting directors in dramatic roles like richard attenborough is a. Uh, I think that was just his sticking it to him for directing Gandhi the year that E.T. came out. <laughs> I didn't know that. Just like, I'm going to make you be the misguided like, fool that's, that decides dinosaurs should come back and roam the earth. And of course, uh, Wayne Knight is in there as a memorable role. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson. B.D. Wong. Remember when he used to be in a bunch of stuff? Mm -hmm. yeah. B.D. Wong. Mm -hmm. And then he was on Law and Order Special Victims Unit for years, and now he's like kind of one of the on main Oz as well. Yeah, on Oz. Yeah. yeah, and he's one of the main antagonists in the current Jurassic World series of films. Oh, is he uh, playing the same character? Yeah, because I've I've not seen a single one of these Jurassic World films. Mm -hmm. I did see Lost World because I was going to say Jurassic Park is kind of almost Steven Spielberg's last like fantasy film. I know he's done sci-fi since then. So I guess not, but also he also directed Lost World, which is a mess of a movie. I should rewatch it, though, maybe. Maybe it's got some redeeming qualities. Uh, it was fun seeing the T-Rex run through San, San Diego. Well, I, what I remember about the Lost World is, um, apart from the T-Rex running from San Diego, which was goofy, there's just that really one intense scene where Julianne Moore is hanging out, out of uh, the edge of the Jeep, mm. hanging off a cliff, and you see like the glass uh, breaking underneath her fingers. Yeah, it was the mobile lab unit because I read the book The Lost World before I saw the movie, and they the, the mobile lab. Well, they actually had two of them in the book, but only one in the movie. Um, yeah, the movie like I think they were developing it before the book was actually finished. So like, and unlike Jurassic Park, it didn't have the same same thing because in the book they never leave the island. Um, but I think Spielberg wanted to be like, we gotta just have dinosaurs on land on in the mainland interacting with people. Otherwise, there's no. Otherwise, it's just the same movie. And is that everything on Jurassic Park you wanted to say? Uh, kind of, yeah. I, I, I mean, it seems like there should be more to say about it. But, um, man, what a, what a great time of the movies. Uh, still, uh, if they were doing a, um, like a rep cinema was, uh, was uh, redoing they, that They one. are doing it. It's, uh, it's playing at the Fox in 3D. Oh, in 3D. Oh, I forgot they released that in 3D. 30th anniversary. Yeah. Speaking of reps, uh, the last time I saw Jurassic Park was... When it was the first anniversary of uh, the Toronto Underground Cinema, they procured a uh, really beat up 35 millimeter printed Jurassic Park, and it was a free screening, and everybody had a great time. Yeah, I didn't. I have yet to see it in theaters since. I would love to go and see a 35 millimeter print of it again. But yeah, Jurassic Park, all, all time pick. I mean, it's our most basic pick that we've all. I mean, I did Apollo 13, so what does that say about us? But you know. <laughs> Whatever. Movies are taste is subjective. And on that note, Phil, what is your fine oh wait, it's my turn. Um it's my final pick. I have two more movies to go, by the way. How is that possible? Did I skip I one? I are you doing eleven? Oh right. I forgot about one. Oh, so we're not it's not second to last. This is, now we're on the second to last. Um it's nineteen ninety four's Tim Burton directed Ed Wood, uh, which is one of my favorite films of all time. 
Uh, starring Johnny Depp as Ed Wood. Boo, Johnny Depp. Uh, Martin Lando as Bella Gossi. Yay. Jo- Johnny Depp in the 90s could do no wrong. So, I mean, let's just remember, crystallize him as 90s Johnny Depp and forget any of the scandals. Yeah, I'd like to see a time travel thing where, like, Johnny Depp from the 1990s comes to now and fights current Johnny Depp. Um, Martin Lando, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, Jeffrey Jones, <laughs> yeah. um, Bill Murray, Lisa Marie, Jim Myers, G.D. Sprouten, Vincent D'Onofrio, Mike Starr, Max Casella, Brent Hinckley, Juliet Lando, uh, Clive Rosengen, Norman Alden, Leonard, Leonard Termo, Ned Bellamy, Danny Dayton, Ross Mark Manarchy. All, all names we know. Bill Cusack. I'm reading them all because this movie is so good. Stanley DeSantis, Biff Yeager, Joseph... I'm also reading the uncredited people now. Joseph R. Gen Oskoli, uh, Carmen Flippy, Lisa Malkowice, Melora Walters. Melora Walters is in this? Oh, interesting. She played secretary number two. Conrad Brooks from the original Plan 9 from Outer Space. Don Emeldilia, Reed Krushanks, uh, Lionel Decker... Edmund L. Schaff, Jean LaBelle, Bobby Slayton, Gretchen Becker. They didn't include George Animal Steel here. Weird. Um, but anyways, yeah, a lot of other people. This movie, it tells, of course, the story of uh, Ed Wood, who at the time was known as the... the. It was a different time as well where, you know, there was this... And it, I hate it whenever it comes up now, this put-down culture. Like, oh, this movie's awful. Let's make fun of it. I just... I hate that so much. Um... He was voted, like, the worst director of all time, and Plan 9 from Outer Space being the worst movie of all time. That, of course, is not correct. Plan 9 from Outer Space is not the worst movie of all time. You know, this is before Avatar came out. Um, <laughs> You're talking about the M. Night Shyamalan movie, obviously. No, that was The Last Airbender. I'm talking, of course, about 2009's big old vacuum of creativity, Avatar, directed by our good friend Jim Cameron. I'm sorry I missed it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good movie, folks. Anyways, uh, yes, Ed Wood is a very good movie. Um, it tells the story. It's it's a very uh, truncated story as well. It only tells him making of uh, three movies, whereas he made a lot more movies during that time period. But it tells uh, the period of him making Glenn or Glenda, his most personal film about his own struggles of being a cross-dresser while also trying to exploit the recent Christine Jorgensen story of the first uh, sex change in uh, in North America. And uh, which was his personal statement, and then of course him making Bride of the of the Monster, which was initially known as Bride of the Atom, and then finally probably what became his magnum opus, uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space. Um, he did of course go on to make many other films, Take It Out and Trade, a lot of stuff I don't remember, Night of the Ghouls, um, Orgy of the Dead. Um, although I think he was only a writer and the assistant director on Orgy of the Dead, um, but. This movie is just great. It's told really well. It's the least Tim Burton of all Tim Burton's movies. It doesn't have any of his real signature trademark like me like um, a design in it. It's black and white. It's it's very good. Um, Phil, what do you got to say about Ed Wood? I like it. Cool. Kate, what do you got to say about Ed Wood? It's been too long since I've seen it. Uh, it's a it's a really good film. Uh, and then Johnny Depp does really uh, really good performance. I just like his kind of like keenly like uh, somebody's like uh, I think one of the gravestones fell down in that shot there. Uh, Ed, he's like, oh no, it's perfect. Well, no, his his thing is it's not movies aren't about the small details. It's about the big picture. Um, which and his performance of Ed Wood is not how the real Ed Wood was. I mean, Ed Wood was an alcoholic who actually died from alcoholism at a very young age, and. I kind of hate like it's it's one of those things like we wouldn't really know about him without that that book that the Michael Medved wrote, but at the same point I hate that he was just put down as being like the the worst filmmaker of all time. Um, this film was written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, two screenwriters who have gone on to do amazing amazing stuff. They also wrote they kind it kind of became a cottage industry for them of doing like 
what they called like um, there was always like the great men of history movies, and they made the the not so great men of history movies. Ed Wood, People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, My Name is Dol- Dolomite is my name, um, and they also did recently the um, O.J. Made in America, not O.J. Made in America, uh, the, People, the People versus O.J. Simpson miniseries, which was quite popular. And they're still doing stuff now. Like I think um, Scott Alexander is running for presidency of the uh, Writers Guild of America, and Larry Karaszewski just wrapped up his time being the president of the Motion Picture Film Academy. Um, they started out writing the Problem Child movies. I know, which they very they hated. They actually like wrote Problem Child one because uh, that was actually a story that was going around Hollywood at the time, being pitched all over town as being like a horror movie because it was based on a true story of like this kid who had been returned several times to like three times to a. To, to an orphanage and they got this kid and he just was like a total disaster like he burned down their house and then after they returned him um, he then tracked them down and tried to kill them so a lot of people wrote it as being a horror movie whereas they wrote it as being a comedy um, and then the movie came out and they hated the movie but it was a big hit so then uh, the chance came around to do Problem Child 2 and they didn't want to do it but then they needed the money so they signed on to do it then they got fired from it then got brought back um, and then they basically have been running away from Problem Child their entire lives um, but uh but yeah, I like get launched their career, and I think the, I I kind of view Ed Wood more as a Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski movie than a Tim Burton movie. Like their fingerprints, their way of writing the story, their characters are all in there, and I just love it to death. And it's it's a great film. So Phil, what's your second to last pick? Again, nineteen ninety seven, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's uh, movie Cure, starring the great Koji Yakusho. Cool, I've not seen this film. Kit, you've seen it. Oh, it's great. It's a it's a really good film. Can you tell us about it, Phil? It's a very eerie, slow burn psychological horror movie about uh random people. They wake up and they realize that they've killed some killed somebody close to them, but they don't real but they have no recollection of what happened not to i don't think this is too much of a spoiler but it turns out there's somebody um hypnotizing so it has to do with a lot with hypnosis so there's this uh serial killer uh mesmerizing and and, uh, hypnotizing people into doing these crimes and they don't realize it that they're doing it and so the whole it's like a police procedural but how do you catch such a killer how do you how do you find the guy who's who's hypnotizing these people and that's what it's about it's a it's a really good film Cool. I've not seen it. Um, I've heard many people recommend it to me, and they also say it's a movie that they all assume came out recently, but when they find out it was released in the 1990s, kind of blows their minds a little. Well, the thing about it is it didn't get a North American release until 2001. Did it, did it play at TIFF was, or Toronto After Dark? I, I believe it was Toronto After Dark in 2001. That's where it got its uh, first uh, legs. Cool. Uh, anything else to add to it, Phil? Not really. It's like, The less said about it, the better. It's it's in a vibe, a very dark, eerie vibe, but I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Cool. All right, Kit, what's your second to last movie? All right, we're going out we're going out to left field for this one. Um staying in the year nineteen ninety seven right. and staying in the country of Japan. Ooh. We have uh, our lone animated film here. We've got yes, that's correct, folks. Hideki Anno's The End of Evangelion. Bum, bum, bum. Which was actually not the end of Evangelion. No, they, they're still making them. <laughs> and we should also point out that Anno uh, Hideki, Hideki? Hideki? Uh, it, it, I, yeah, Hideki Anno, or Anno Hideki, depending on 
he, he would where make, you put the surname he would make the smash uh hit uh, 19, 2016's shin godzilla which won the uh, japanese academy award for best picture and was a big hit in japan and is a dynamite film he would also go on to make shin ultraman and is uh, wrapping and he did another evangelion film also in the shin series and he's wrapping up his shin series of films with shin kamen writer this year which is um him just doing takes on classic japanese cultural stuff in a modern context yeah, so the end of Evangelion is basically, so there was a, a television show um, called Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, which ran from 95 to 96. I don't want to get too much into the plot about it, but it just has to do with uh, there's an apocalyptic event and then like 15 years in the future, uh, what happens are what are called angels start appearing. They call them angels, and it's just basically big monsters of completely like one will be like a walking stomping monster that attacks the city and then another one will just be a giant crystal which appears um and they're always kind of different um and so they arrive and uh send people into a panic and uh the society's kind of built around having to deal with these um and the uh, secretive organization of nerve uh has created evangelions which are basically like giant sort of mechs that need to be piloted by special sexy teenagers uh, apparently, <laughs> uh they have to pass some sort of psychological profile or something like that and if they're perfect then the um spirit inside the evangelion will accept them and allow them to pilot it it's just some sort of um i think it gets into a bit of shintoism and stuff like that as well so so it was clearly an influence on Pacific Rim. Yes, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, and so uh, our main our main uh, protagonist is uh, Shinji Akari, whose father is actually the secretive head of Nerve, and he does not have a good relationship with his father. Um, and he's a coward. Shinji is a coward. He's always um, chickening out. Uh, it's like, get into the Eva there, uh, Shinji. We've got a, a, an attack is happening on uh, uh, Neo Tokyo. And he, he just like he crawls up into a ball and he can't do it. And he's too scared. Um, but he is the guy who has to pilot this uh, Evangelion. Anyway, so that went on for two seasons. And then the final two episodes of the series. And you're like, well, what's going to happen? Everything's building. There's all these secrets uh, around Nerve and uh, what's going to happen with the narrative. The final two episodes are just like, well, maybe it's all just psychological. And uh, Shinji just needs to uh, believe in himself. And um, and the whole, like, the whole final episode is just him... In his mind, it's doing line drawings. The animation is completely different, uh, black, black, mainly black with white line drawing kind of a uh, kind of thing. Um, and they're just like uh, Shinji. You just need to have confidence in yourself, and just building up his confidence. Um, and uh, then everybody uh, gives him the thumbs up. They're like, "You did it, Shinji!" And then the the series ends with just all the characters from the show going, "You did it!" Uh, it's actually like a, a GIF meme that you can see on the. Uh, just a bunch of the characters going, way to go, Shinji, you did it. And that's how the series ends. And a lot of fans were like, what the hell was that? <laughs> we, we went all this way just for a confidence building uh, two episode uh, story arc. What, what was that nonsense? So anyway, um, two, uh, one year later, um, he released the end of Evangelion, which is actually the real ending. Um, some people thought it was budget constraints that he couldn't do the ending on the show, but Hideki Anno has said, no, I was just really depressed and I couldn't think of an ending. Um, so the movie, um, is kind of what's supposed to be the ending. And that is just, it's uh, balls to the wall. A lot of things are happening. Um, basically, um, everything comes, comes around, um, everything comes down. The entire society comes down. Uh, God himself is destroyed. It's an insane movie. 
Uh, I, I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, you do kind of have to watch the show, all 26 episodes of the show leading into it. But um, I have never, in the last five years, I have not seen a movie where I was just, I was like smiling from ear to ear for the last hour of this film because I was just, my mind was so boggled. Uh, fantastic uh, finale. Uh, they are still making them. They're called the rebuilds. So it's like, well, what if this happened instead? Or what if this happened instead? Uh, because obviously in the end of Evangelion, like, as I say, God is destroyed. All human life is kind of, uh, we're just left with Shinji and Asuka, who's another character, um, uh, just laying on a beach in the post-apocalyptic post wilderness as uh, God lays in the background dead. It's a, it's a wild, wild movie. I can't recommend it enough. But um, yeah, that's I guess that's my second last pick. Uh, I'm sure you guys don't have a lot to say on this. But um, I mean, for the adventurous, and if you like that kind of... Uh, there's a lot of anime films that I could have picked. I was thinking there's a lot of great uh, Studio Ghibli output in the 90s, uh, including uh, Princess Mononoke and um, uh, a number of others that are worthy. Uh, obviously, anime really peaked in uh, Western society in the 90s. Uh, Akira is from the 80s, but that uh, didn't become prevalent uh, in the Western society until the 90s when we all watched it in high school. And, uh, of course, you've got Ninja Scroll and uh, Ghost in the Shell and films like that, which were really big. Uh, uh, oh, Perfect Blue is another uh, really big one from that era. But uh, for my money, even though you do have to do a bit of work, uh, The End of Evangelion is the one to watch cool <laughs> I, I haven't seen I'm not an anime fan I haven't seen Evangelion but I did love Shin Godzilla, Godzilla and I liked Shin Ultraman so maybe I'll check out some Evangelion it, it yeah it takes a while if you like the show if you can get into the first episode of the show which does have a good hook how long are the episodes half an hour less than half an hour because uh, they got commercial breaks worked in thank god okay <laughs> but it is kind of just oh and uh, it's not in the uh, movie but the theme song for the show is a banger. Fantastic. One of the best. Cool, Phil. Do you have any thoughts on the end of Evangelion? None whatsoever. <laughs> cool. All right, moving on. This is my final pick, and it's also a bit of a wild one. So uh, there were lots of films I, th I thought to add, but this is a film that I've seen recently that really struck me. It's also black and white. It's also from 1997. It is Josh Becker's 1997 crime thriller Running Time. Uh, so this film kind of flew under the radar when it came out. It's basically set in real time, uh, and it follows Bruce Campbell as a character of Carl who gets released from prison, who then immediately goes into a plot to rob the warden of the prison. Um, so yeah, so it stars Bruce Cam Campbell, Jeremy Roberts, Anita Barone, William Stanford Davis, Gordon Jennison Noyce, and that's pretty much it. It is a mile a minute, just like... It's also shot uh, to... It's also every single... Um, it's shot in the same way of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, where everything is supposed to be one shot. And they did this on film uh, way before, what was that movie, 2019, no, uh, 1921? What was that movie that uh, was, no, 1917. Uh, the, oh, the uh, Sam Mendes movie. Sam Mendes yeah, movie. With the, with the tracking shots, the two tracking mm -hmm. shots. Bit of a gimmick, but I actually kind of like 1917. Okay, um, but this film is great. It's a great little gritty black and white crime thriller, thriller shot on 16 millimeter. Um, it was largely unavailable until there was a Blu-ray that came out during the pandemic released by Synapse Films, or Synapse Releasing, sorry, and it is a great film, just pulse-pounding, 69 minutes, go, 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 does not stop, and when it finally reaches its crescendo, it's great. There are a lot of, and interestingly enough, for a movie that 
that is, is set over real time and is supposed to all be one unbroken take. They, they cover it up with like transitions and whatnot. Uh, it's, it has a full story arc, a full character arc. Um, and it's just great. Like, uh, you guys haven't seen it, so you can't really talk about it, but I highly recommend this movie. I think it's probably like the best, it, it is a, the best example of the 1990s indie boom or something just quirky and bizarre like this can actually get made with Bruce Campbell. This is also Bruce Campbell's return to like really gritty independent filmmaking. Cause at, in this time, like he had done, you know, army of darkness and Briscoe, the adventures of Briscoe County jr. And he was working mostly at this time with Sam Raimi on, uh, the new adventures of Hercules and Xena warrior princess. So this was him just, you know, like let's just do a down and dirty independent movie in Los Angeles, uh, almost entirely shot on a steady cam, uh, 16 millimeter black and white, just, just a bang up movie. Man, I haven't seen this one. Cool. I highly recommend it. Phil, have you seen it or heard about it? I've never even heard of it. So, and let's talk about Josh Becker, the director of the film. So he he was known because he wrote the Evil Dead Diary because he was he worked on the original Evil Dead ostensibly as a production designer, but he was kind of the outsider on that film. And he wrote this diary about the making of it, and just like he kind of like summed up. He was the first one that really talked about how like hard it was to to make Evil Dead. Um, and he moved out to Los Angeles before all the guys that worked on Evil Dead. And he actually got scurvy because he didn't eat any vegetables or fruits while he was, like, saving money because he was eating craft dinner the entire – or macaroni and cheese. You can't be doing that. Um, he is best known – I mean, unfortunately, Running Time isn't his best movie. He's known for the film Lunatics, a love story from 1991. Um, he also did Thou Shalt Not Kill, except – Great title. Um yeah, and then he later on didn't do. I mean, he made some films like stuff that I'd never seen. But he did Alien Apocalypse, starring um, in two thousand five, starring Bruce Campbell, which is probably his best known film of that era. Um, and then not really anything after that of note. Um, but Running Time is his is his peak, and it is fantastic. I'll have to check that out. Cool, Phil. What is your final film of your top ten films of the nineteen nineties? My final film is one you have lots of opinions about, Graham. It yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's Clifford. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. J.K. Graham. Uh, okay. We good pal cleanser. Uh, uh, 1998's uh, the penultimate Dogma 1995 nine, oh, Dogma 95 film. Uh, Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration. Fantastic pick. I love this movie. I have not seen it, but I uh, want to. Talk about another film that goes a mile a minute. Like, this film is so fast and so hard and so good. Bleak, but funny. Mm -hmm. um, It's shot on very bad digital video, but it looks beautiful somehow. That's the thing. It looks hideous, but it also looks incredible. Like, it's so technically accomplished. And, yeah, they pull it off. And uh, I guess the plot could be best described as proto-succession sure um i do like i also think that this film is like the if you're really lazy about it yeah this film is like the apex of dogma 95 because after this it was all kind of downhill wasn't this also the first official dog dogma 95 movie i believe it was yeah i mean i learned about dogma 95 in film school and uh, we watched breaking the waves but which is not even technically dogma 95 but spurs from that well technically this film isn't dogma 95 because it credits the director like originally uh dogma 95 films were not supposed to have uh, director credits yeah Yeah. it's supposed to be about a vow of cinematic chastity (laughs) 
but it otherwise follows the rules because all this lighting's natural. Mm-hmm. The uh, it was actually adapted into a stage play that was performed in uh, Toronto. Got over a decade ago now. Wow. Starring wow. Uh, the dad from Corner Gas as the oh my uh, god, the patriarch. what's his face? Yeah, who was also in, in Street, Street Legal. Legal. Yeah. Yeah. Who I thought I saw at uh, the LCBO the other day, and then I remembered, I think that guy's dead. He's quite dead, yeah. (laughs) So it's not him. Quite dead. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, a great, great choice, Phil. Love that movie. Anything else you want to add to it? Not really, no. As as great as it is, I don't have much to say about my picks. I know. Just just go out and see it. Um, So, Kit, you're ending us off. What is your final pick for best film, your favorite films of the 1990s? All right, we're going to end it off appropriately enough with a movie that came out in 1999 oh my god the matrix <laughs> no although i mean the matrix is a good film but it's not a film that i've seen recently enough um i'm talking about uh and and we're going back to our, our tour cinema of course oh i know which one it is i know what it is uh yes you do you've guessed it it is indeed stanley kubrick's final film eyes wide shut heck yeah a film that, like, you you might watch and you might come away with, like, this isn't that good. It's weird. Uh, but uh, the more times... the more that's what makes it good. The more times you watch, the better it gets. Um, and uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Tom Cruise, obviously, uh, famously starring with his then-wife, Nicole Kidman. Um, and, of course, uh, Stanley Kubrick famously died in post-production. He wasn't able to actually see it premiere, sadly enough. But despite what everyone said, the ending, the, the final cut was his final cut. Yes. I remember there was a lot of controversy that um, nudity had been cut or something like that after he had died. I don't think that's true. No, well, they had, he, he knew he had to release a releasable version. Like he couldn't release an, uh, an X-rated or NC-17 version. It had to be R. So he filmed alternate scenes of uh, people standing in front of, of other people. Ah, uh, Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, obviously the great, uh, Sidney Pollack in a, in a fantastic, uh, little scene, especially with, uh, no shirt and suspenders, Sidney Pollack. Apparently Sidney Pollack, like, agreed to do the movie for, like, no money because he just wanted to see how Stanley worked. Oh, fair enough. Um, and then, uh, Todd Field, also is Nick Nightingale. Oh, yeah. Todd Field, the director of Tar. Um, uh, Alan Cumming, an early role for Lily Sobieski. Yeah, and that really sketchy scene. That gets even sketchier. Yep, with her 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 dad Raid. Uh, I I don't know how to oh, pronounce yeah, that, his name. That dude was in everything. He was this uh, former Yugoslavian uh, Raid Serbizija. I don't know how to pronounce. I'm butchering it. I'm I'm sorry, Raid. He was also um uh, the fake main villain of the first season of Twenty Four. It turned he out he was just in everything in the late nineties. He was, yeah. Um, uh, wasn't he the Russian, the main Russian in Snatch, I want to say? I think he was. I want to say that he was. I guess I could look it up. Uh, Fun fact, you know that they reused the Shining End theme in the ballroom scene in uh, in uh, Eyes Wide Shut? I did not know that. Yeah, it's there. He put it in, in like, lightly in the background, which meant that Stanley Kubrick knew that he had already, well, I mean, he knew he gained a reputation, so he probably like just put it in there as a little, like, here's a little Easter egg for the for the for the Kubrick heads. I, I love the sinister score, the use of uh, Ligeti's piano music throughout the, the movie. Yeah, just three piano notes. And and just just a classic movie, a classic Christmas movie too. Put this on for the family uh, next Christmas time. It's also, it's also a really funny movie. 
It is. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's like when it came out, like there was so much hype around it. Probably like with everyone thinking, like we're gonna see Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise have sex on screen. No, you're not. And then it's this <laughs> weird, like psychological odyssey, comedic odyssey. It's just it's just Kubrick having fun. It's like we're gonna bring in Tom Cruise, the sexiest man on earth, and just have him not get laid for ninety minutes. Yeah, the main main uh, plot thrust is Tom Cruise keeps on trying to get laid. Uh, he's he's trying to because he he thinks that Nicole Kidman is cheating on him. Maybe I don't know. No, no, he he thinks she has the capacity to cheat. That's, that's correct. He has that fantasy of her and the um, because she tells him about her fantasy of the, uh, the naval officer. of the naval officer, and then he he kind of visualizes that, and he's like, well, I I better go and get some for myself, and he can't do it. Folks, he stymied at every turn. He fails even when he tries to pay for it. Yeah, he even goes to a wild sex party um, of the elites, which is actually like uh, some people were like, Stanley Kubrick was killed for this. He was murdered. He, he didn't no, die of natural no. causes. He was revealing facts. Although, I mean, I, I'm sure that's not true. But also, I do believe that the elites have these weird little gatherings, man. That's that's definitely a possibility. They are... they. Ex they inhabit a different realm than the rest of us, where uh, morals are quite different. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the, the film kind of communicates well. Um, uh, I know Scorsese and Ebert went over this in their, their top ten thing, but just how um, it's a New York movie that's not at all set in New York. <laughs> it's the least New York New York movie ever. Yeah, which is fine. That's what, that's what makes it great, that it's a complete mystery He's, he's walking down like cobbled narrow streets and uh, people who live in New York are like, there's, there's no street in existence in New York that looks like that. But that doesn't matter. Well, that's because Kubrick's basing it on his own memories of New York from when he like, – because he, he left New York like in the in the 60s. So like he's he's picturing pre-societal um, – pre like pre-collapsed New York, which is like a, a, a mixture of like the 30s and the 40s and the 20s. Um, yeah, so it's it's a what you call a sumptuous film. Um, all the shots are great. Uh, just the the ritualistic, uh, the the mask wearing and all of that, and um, the the chiming of the bells, so ominous during that uh, that great um, party scene. Um, I don't know, Phil. What are your thoughts? I think I've said everything. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I guess that brings us to the end. Do you, do you want me to quickly go over what uh, Scorsese and uh, Ebert picked, and we can just uh, judge judge them on their their picks? All right. So, uh, top ten for Ebert, he's got JFK. Sure, that's good. That's a decent film. Uh, Malcolm X, which was very close to being on my list. Very good film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent. Uh, not enough is said about Malcolm X. It's it's so many genres at once. Spike Lee actually does. It, there's a crime genre. It starts off as just a hustler crime drama. It turns into a political drama. Um, just fantastic all the way through. Uh, Ebert also picks Leaving Las Vegas, which I've pretty much forgot. I've never actually seen Leaving Las Vegas. It's very good. I liked it at the time. I don't know how it holds up now. Uh, drinking yourself to death. Um, uh, he picks the aforementioned Breaking the Waves, which, uh, is the one film in film school that actually made my jaw drop at a certain part, uh, because it gets wild. Oh yeah, old uh, <laughs> old freak boy getting his freak on. Uh, then Schindler's List, which I guess was a more obvious pick at the end of the '90s when they released their list, and then time has—I don't know—people are kind of down on Schindler's List for some reason. I've only seen it the one time. Uh, I saw it in theaters when it when it came out, and I've never returned to it because it's not a film where you're like, "I'm gonna put this on." Yeah, it's it's a, it's a big. I mean, it's about the Holocaust, which is the biggest like depressing failure of humanity that we've seen as a, as a society in recent history. 
Um, so it's it's one of those things like I don't know if people are really down on it now. Or it's just like we just don't want to relive this because it's just so uh, so difficult. You know, it's a lot easier to watch Inglorious Bastards than it is to watch Schindler's List. It's uh, also the film that gave us um, decades worth of Liam Neeson action films somehow. Oh yeah, because he really was wasn't really a thing before this. Movie. He was in Dark Man, Rob Roy. I think he was in Rob Roy as well. Rob Roy, I think, came out after. I believe so. Yeah, could yeah. be. Could be. Uh, and now he's just it in. Gave us Ray Fiennes as well. It did give us Ray Fiennes, who's who's a really talented actor, and he's ac- excellent in that. I think he won the uh, Academy Award. But then uh, Liam Neeson just releases like two action films a year now at uh, the age of ninety. Um, then we got the Three Colors trilogy. <laughs> Which I've never seen, blue, white, and red. I've never seen them. I'm sure they're fine. Whatever, yeah. They're good. I like Juliette Binoche, so maybe I should check them out. Fargo, which we've already discussed. Yeah. Pulp Fiction, which we've already discussed. Yep. Goodfellas, which we've already discussed. Yep. And then finally, Hoop Dreams, which uh, the lone documentary that's been brought up, I've never seen it. Well, that's that was a big... Roger Ebert was a big proponent of Hoop Dreams, and it is like... I've seen bits of it. I haven't seen the whole thing, because it's like four hours long. But it is, I remember it, it, it was such a titanic shift in like documentary as, as it went, it made doc, it went from documentaries being boring to documentaries being fun. Cause before this, you had like uh, Roger Moore with Roger and me kind of opening up the forum, but this was something that was just so Roger Moore. <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, sorry. <laughs> Roger Moore, uh, Michael Moore, uh, with Roger and me. It's, uh, it's hot and sweaty. I'm tired. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, like it, it, Hoop Dreams was just like it just blew open the door and exposed a lot of people to a world that they didn't know existed. It's one of the first big documentaries I remember existing as yeah, a kid. For sure. Um, I saw it once. I, my recollection of it is rather faint. I saw it, I think, when I was probably 12 because I wanted to watch serious movies. Um, but speaking of Hoop Dreams, one of the directors of Hoop Dreams, I believe, directed that Evert documentary, Life Itself. Mm. Which I've never seen, but that sounds interesting. Cool. Uh, so that was Ebert's list. Where's Scorsese's? All right. So we, we're starting. He does a tie for number 10. Again, cheating, but I guess uh, Graham did the same thing. Uh, Malcolm X and Heat. We've sort of discussed yeah. both. Uh, Fargo at number nine. Uh, Crash at number eight. Yeah. yeah. Scorsese had a bit of the perv in them. Uh, he goes with Bottle Rocket for number seven, which is an interesting pick. Again, we sort of discussed that earlier, but um, he, he saw potential in Wes Anderson early on. Uh, Breaking the Ways, which we just brought up as well. Uh, Bad Lieutenant, which yeah. was on another one of my shortlist ones. Mm-hmm. Um, really great film starring Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, a Borrowed Life, I don't know. Don't know it. Uh, foreign film. Scorsese's always trying to show off how snooty he is. Uh, Thin Red Line, which we've discussed. And then another film, which he really cheats on, because this film was released in 1986, Horse Thief. What are we doing here, Scorsese? Come on. You couldn't pick another film from the 90s? He's just trying to get that hipster cred. <laughs> All right. So with that, that is our end of our episode on the best of the 1990s. Uh, thanks for sticking around, whoever has. Yeah. Hopefully this will be the start of a new era of our podcast where we release them. Uh, new. Oh, well, yeah. Shit. Honorable mentions. Um, well, Nemesis. Yeah, let's let's talk, let's bring up uh, our honorable mention. I think for all of us, that is the one, the only Albert Pune's Nemesis, a film that's really grown on me since I first saw it. Yeah, have you seen it again? Uh, like within the last year, yeah. Hell yeah! After he passed, I, I gave it a rewatch, and I'm like, this is just fun. It doesn't make sense, but it's fun. Oh yeah, it's wacky, jacky weirdness, but it's it's great. Yeah, so many good films from the '90s, like Seven, mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs, um, Barton Fink, Fight Club, Point Break, another good one. Unforgiven, I didn't mention that was on my short list. Uh, Idle Hands. 
Idle Hands. I didn't even think of The Fugitive is so good. Wayne's Idle World. Idle Hands is one of your favorites? Yeah, I think it's great. King of New York, which I think you were almost going to pick. Yeah, that was barely etched out. I mean, Reservoir Dogs as well, Jackie Brown. Uh, Hard Boiled. Uh, yeah, some John Woo. Some John Woo. Hard Boiled. I'd also put Bullet in the Head. Or Bullet, yeah, Bullet in the Head. His, uh, his Vietnam drama. Um, why not Face Off? Let's go there. Let's get nuts. Uh, Clear Cut, the Graham Greene film. Uh, a Canadian, Canadian, uh, folk horror film that's fantastic yeah batman returns i throw that in there also existence another canadian film the david cronenberg video game movie oh yeah that's right um with the flesh controllers you got any more phil uh my honorable mentions i like those aren't any of mine but um (laughs) (laughs) i i omitted the rapture the michael tolkien movie with um mimi rogers and a mulleted david duchovny uh, another one I omitted was um, An Angel at My Table, the Jane Campion movie. Cool. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, uh, the piano also came out in the uh, 90s, didn't it? It sure did. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. a good one. Yeah. Uh, Fight Club. I'm a big fan of that film. I mean, the 1999, 1999 has been called as being like the best movie year ever. I mean, there's a whole book written about it. I don't agree with that. You did bring up The Matrix, which is iconic. Yeah, yeah The Matrix. Um, and... Yeah, just a lot of good stuff. Um, a lot of good stuff came out in the 90s. A lot of bad stuff, too, to be honest. Of course, every decade has its good and its bad. I mean, the other thing is that we lived through this decade, but this decade, but we weren't really adults, so it's a bit hard to look back on it, whereas like, I feel like the 80s, because we don't really recall that decade, we can kind of look back on it with a bit of nostalgic fondness, and like the 2000s, we look at because that's when we entered our adulthood period, like we all turned 20 in the, in the 2000s. Um, so the 1990s is kind of like a weird, uh, weird era. Um, especially for North American films. And I'm still discovering films from the 90s that are that are good. I, you guys mentioned a number of ones that I'm putting on a list and I'll, I'll watch eventually. For shizzle. All right, so for Death by Video. <laughs> I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome back. Uh, saying, uh, keep watching amazing movies. Thank you for listening tonight. Thank you.